The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. You're listening to Weird Scene This Have a Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight we're talking black exploitation. Fighting the power on Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Welcome Back, to yeah, yeah we've, we've returned after a little hiatus there. Uh, take some time off to enjoy uh, the holidays, whatever you may be celebrating during that time of year. There are many, uh, both religious and pagan. <laughs> and uh, so we are back. Uh, let me just see what to say here. Uh, basically, for those who don't know, we're in the second season of Weird Seasons Inside the Gold Mine. Uh, this is week 19, but I believe we're what, about seven weeks into the second season. Um, so your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. And, you know, drop in for a spell. Join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Uh, so tonight, we're going to be getting down and taking on the man. 
one of the most consistently entertaining of genres. The black exploitation film was an ersatz love child of the civil rights movement, often helmed and produced by established white directors like Jack Hill or Graydon Clark, but tailored to inner-city urban audiences. Simultaneously, quote, realist in their gritty, no-holds-barred depiction of ghetto life and early fantastics, which is crazed kung fu or unrealistic scenarios, these pictures offered the promise of empowerment and, more importantly, pride to a community emerging from the shadows to take a more equal place in American society throughout the late 60s and 70s. Packed to the gills with soulful, funky soundtracks, which are often quite essential in and of themselves, no-holds-barred action, crime, ersatz appropriations from the concurrent kung fu craze, these films feature stylish fashions of the era, sports heroes, martial arts stars, sex, and most importantly, tales of the victory of one man or a united community against corruption in high places, cops, government, mobsters, you name it. And to quote a much later film, they do it with style. So join us as we talk flying fists, funky froze, and flashy fashion, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So uh, I'm Doc Savage, and with me after a couple of weeks break here is my co-host, Louis Paul. Welcome. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, it's great to have everybody listening again. Um, yeah, it was a season to be merry and uh, uh, to uh, acknowledge whatever you were doing, whether it was uh, Christian, Jewish, pagan, or otherwise. You know, uh, we know you were waiting for us to return. We we just know. It, you know, people are like, when are you coming back? So we're back. <laughs> That's it. And, um, <laughs> and and this show is going to be a fun one, uh, we hope, um, <laughs> because as you outlined, uh, uh, yeah, this this was, you know, there was a lot going on in the sixties and the seventies, uh, mm-hmm. America especially. Uh, France France concurrently with America, but then America kind of blew up, right? Uh, in terms Civil rights movements uh, and uh, rioting, and uh, the rioting was an effect of what was going on. And, and it's funny in the last year or so, we're seeing that again here. Yes, we are. Um, we're probably not going to get any cool movies out of it, but uh, <laughs> uh, no good I mean, movies, I, no good music. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it, it, folks, this genre is hit and miss. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We, you know, we don't want to paint a, a gilded lily. Is, is that it? But, I mean, some of these movies are horrible. <laughs> but then some of them, and but some of them are very entertaining. And then some of them are great. But see, the and, ones that you probably think are horrible are probably some of my favorites. <laughs> so go ahead. Well, well we, we didn't get there, so we don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh but um, it's it's very interesting genre of film. It's often overlooked nowadays. But all the you know all the interest. Uh, let's say the word hindsight. You know, and, and the Euro genre and, and Hong Kong cinema, right? Uh, and, and all these other things. It kind of got it gets buried and and. Of all people, you have to you have to give kudos to Quentin Tarantino yes. for Jackie Brown, which is a movie that kind of just blasted again. The guy loves cinema. You don't know how to edit himself as a writer. But <laughs> Tarantino, I have very I don't even want to say mixed feelings. There's a couple things I like from him, but mostly I do not like him. I don't care for his personality, and I don't like his films. But I give the man tremendous credit 
for kickstarting basically the DVD revolution because what came out with DVDs, what was everybody looking for? What was the main driver of the DVD market? Just like we talked about in the past, you know, VHS market was driven by the fact that you can get porn and you don't have to go to some sleazy theater to do it. You can watch it in the privacy of your own home. The DVD revolution was very, very much driven by cult cinema uh, and people's interest in that. And when you go back to where that started, not just in terms of books or in little critical circles, but in terms of a mass audience of people saying, hey, what the hell is this? Let me check this out. A lot of that came from Tarantino. And you could say that the uh, Hong Kong cinema, which had blown up in the late 90s over here, I mean, the stuff that we were watching from like 10, 15 years before in China, but over here it just kind of got big around, you know, maybe 96, 97. that may have predated him or maybe been concurrent with him, but definitely the interest in Italian cinema, especially Italian crime cinema, uh, the interest in black exploitation, the interest in a lot of these oddball genres. I mean, even things like you know French, uh, not foreign film in terms of the way people usually think, like Truffaut and Godard and all that stuff, but I mean in terms oh, of no. things like – yeah, Roman yeah. and all this like weird shit. That that's he is a major driver for that in the quote mainstream audience because you know he has that hip cash in. Whatever he does becomes like, oh wait, let me check this out. And he had that what was that Rolling Thunder pictures for a while. Uh, he actually put out a few of these things. Remember, he put out like Switchblade Sisters and uh, right. one or two Black Expectations and you know, the odd things he would put out. And the idea was just, okay, the guy was working in a video store, and therefore he was exposed to all this bizarre shit that most people weren't. And because he became famous, for better or worse, you know, whatever you think about his talent or lack thereof, uh, the fact is that he became a very visible uh, media focal point. And he used that to say, hey, look, these films are great. You should check this out. They're loads of fun. And champion people like Fernando DeLeo and things like this. And because of him... We have what we have today, and I really can't thank this guy enough just for that. Anything else? Yeah, just for that. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I, I agree with that. And and but uh, I and I'm not a lover of a lot of his movies. There are some. Uh, I mean, I mean, nail me to the wall. But I really like Kill Bill. I really do. Um, it, for weird reasons, you know, uh, because as a whole, it doesn't work. But for what do you call it? some of its parts? I, I think I, I really find that a lot. But my favorite film of this is Jackie Brown, which is the genre we're talking about today. Because I think Jackie Brown is, is a very nice uh, uh, homage <laughs> to these these kind of movies that we're talking about this evening. And uh, and it has Pam Greer, you know. Um, and you know the guy was in love with Pam Greer. I mean, the opening of this movie begins with the entire song across 110th Street as she's on the one of those, uh, what do you call it, at the airport, one of those, you stand on it and it moves, I forgot what they're called. And it, they just do the whole tune, and it's just amazing. And uh, I, I like that movie a lot. And uh, probably the last good modern like exploitation film, and somebody makes another one. Yeah, I'm, and I'll go you one worse on Tarantino and say that uh, actually, if not my favorite, then definitely in my top two or three of Tarantino's films is Death Proof because not because it's good, but because it's perfect 
in evoking what it's shooting for. It's trying to recreate these sleazy, crap-ass, you know, made for a drive-in. Nobody should see this more than it was, you know, filmed for like twenty bucks down in Texas or something with a bunch of no names. Sort of, you know, drive-in experience. That film was actually like. Yeah, you know what? This actually feels like it. Whereas the Rodriguez one, whatever the hell that was, uh, I forget the one with the, the machine gun on her leg. There it was horrible. Planet that Planet that didn't feel yeah. like a grand house film at all. But Death Proof did, and a lot of people don't like it. I mean, fact, most people don't like it. But I found that I was like, you know what? This is if you're gonna try to do one of these things, he came pretty damn close. He he knew it well enough. It was almost like watching SCTV. I'm gonna do the satires. It's like, yeah, they know this <laughs> stuff pretty well. You know, they're, they're kind of dead on with it. I mean, it's not exact. You can pick things apart, but really, when you look at it, it's like, wow, they really knew their shit. It's not like a, uh, Saturday Night Live just but doing dumb drug humor because they're stoned. I mean, they actually knew their shit. So I got that out of uh, Death Proof, and that's why I like that one. You know, but, you know, everybody will crucify you for that. That's what's like. I'll one-up you with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to crucify you. I hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, love Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's the man, but uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about that tonight. Right? Maybe we'll we'll do a Quentin Tarantino show one night. We'll, we'll oh, that'd be interesting. And <laughs> compare notes. That would be uh, interesting. Um, but anyway, black exploitation. Uh, I kind of summed up the general points. the The time period, like you said, was very. Uh, uh, Formative in society uh, of that period. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we seem to be regressing back before that time lately. But for many years, uh, you know, through the 70s, through the 80s, to, through the 90s, even through the early millennium to some extent, the changes that were brought on through the 60s reforms and protests and whatever grassroots stuff that was happening, for good and for bad, kind of stayed with us, and it changed the way we operate in society. It started the environmental movement. It started a lot of things. Uh, of course, integration, which, okay, yeah, it started from busing, but, you know, nonetheless, the protests that were going on, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, yeah. all this stuff was really out of the 60s, basically, and the late 60s did that for the most part. Um, so coming out of that wild time, one of the things that happened was okay, we're getting past, to some extent, this idea of, oh, are we equal and all this shit? And you're like, well, you know what? Instead of being ashamed to be black, like, you know, maybe back in the 50s or something when they had the colored fountains and all that horse shit, uh, get to the back of the bus and all that, you know, getting sprayed with hoses by cops and everything, uh, like Miles Davis talks about, if you ever read his autobiography, that's an interesting thing to read. Um, You know, all of a sudden now they were saying, you know what? Not only am I okay as I am, but I'm proud to be who I am. Finally, I'm like comfortable in my own skin. So yeah, you know what? I'm not afraid to be black. I don't need to conk my hair and you know try to whiten myself like Michael Jackson did. You know, I can be proud to be who I am. And that's a really powerful message for everybody out there. It doesn't matter that okay, you know, I'm white, you're white, you know, so what we're talking about black films. The fact is that that message per se, take away the particulars of it, that's a message we all need to hear and stand up for is your own rights. Like the the ability to say even like this geek thing that's going on lately is kind of cheesy, but all right, fine. You, I'm proud to be a geek or whatever. I, I like Dungeons and Dragons and I'm a brony or whatever. Okay, fine. You know, it's strange. There's there's little things you can nitpick, but the basic idea is be proud of who you are and fuck everybody else. And if they don't like it, that's their problem, not yours. Well, and that, well, I think yeah, and I think this whole thing was helped or assisted with crossover stars. I mean. Oh, yeah. uh, 
Oh, Sidney Poitier. Uh, Sidney Poitier. Sydney, yeah, wow. <laughs> Sidney Poitier. Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> um, like, wow, great minds think alike. Um, he was, he's, he is a great actor. And, James Earl um, Jones. James Earl Jones. But before James, uh, James is mainly a the, theater, theater, theatrical right. person <laughs> in the early years, at least. Well, Diane Carroll had that stupid uh, that drama where she was a nurse Julia. on TV. Julia, yeah. Yeah, Julia. And, yeah, Christian Wells. Second later, but was was like you know uh, they called me Mr. Tibbs. You know what was that in the heat of the night? Rod Steiger was that sixty eight, sixty nine. Yep. Tremendous. Uh, Star Trek. Looking in horror. I mean that was you know that was a big Lieutenant deal, especially with the big woo, this scary interracial kiss. <laughs> and I hate to bring this up, but I mean one of the all breaking, wall busting. Genre breakers. This guy was accepted as the everyman in quotations was Bill Cosby. True. For the, I mean, for the TV yeah. show. In retrospect, it's like, wow, it's really. But for a long time, he was a big deal. I mean, first off, like you said, he was a comedian with I Spy and all that stuff. Then he started doing all the children's stuff. Big. Yeah, I, I Spy. Yeah, big, I think before the children's stuff. I think I Spy really broke the walls everywhere. International yes. co-production, um, adventure. It was sort of like, you know how we, we, we talked recently, well, not recently, but we we talked in the past about the professionals and show, British shows like that, and I Spy was like an American version, you know, of that. And right. um, um, Robert Culp and him, they were, you know, it was like jet setters, and it was like, we never really thought of them as black, you know? Right. No cause. And uh, I think that helped a lot. And yeah, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant O'Hara in Star Trek, you know. And it just started trickling out from there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, one of these things that, uh, in the middle of this, I guess, because it was primarily just like films are, especially on the more um, uh, monetized and back in those uh, – nowadays it's all like this. Nowadays every film is exploitation because they're run by corporations. They don't even bother you know, vetting out a script. They just sit there and say, okay, what uh, are the co- trigger words and the, the points of movies that people you know trend highest that they like this particular thing? And they take this piece and that piece and, okay, this is trending high. Let's throw this in. And then they make this kind of melange in a boardroom basically, and then they hand it out to some. Somebody who's like one of their favorite script boys, you know, uh, like if you're talking comics, it'd be like, you know, Bendis or somebody, they give it to him, oh yeah, he's our safe boy. Uh, and they'll go and make up this dummy script from what they were handed by the boardroom, effectively, by the, by the statisticians. And they make yeah. these horrible, look alike, sound alike, super safe, sure to be a hit with, you know, a large demographic crap. Uh, that's why movies and, t- and music and everything kind of sucks ass nowadays. But back then, uh, <laughs> you, you know, these things were kind of unique. You know, most films were made by, uh, even if it was made by a studio, it was more somebody would come in with an idea, and then a director would say, "I want to put my spin on it," and you know, they'd be back and forth. But when you got out to the more seedier side of things, where you're dealing with, you know, somebody that ran this regional drive-in chain, or this guy that runs, you know, the couple theaters on the Deuce or whatever the hell, uh, all of a sudden it was like just like it is now. It's like, well, you know, what's going to sell? What makes money? Hey, put some tits in there, or whatever. So these guys had said, hey, look, now we got, you know, we got a new audience here. These black folks come to these audience, these movies, and they want to see, you know, people like them, and they want to see what what they like, what they react to. Oh, okay, well, they really like, you know, stand up to the cops and kicking ass, and oh, they really like, you know, stand up to whitey or whatever, the hell, you know, this kind of shit. So they started what? building. 
a yeah, thing out of this. Exactly. And, 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 and sometimes, sometimes uh, uh, enterprising, low-budget filmmakers like Jerry right. Gross, who had Cinemation Industries, and he, he did like, I drink your blood, I eat your skin, shit like that. Right. He saw money because he was like, okay, okay, looks like the, the majors, like Warner Brothers, are starting to get interested in this. I want to dig deeper. So he hires Melvin Van Peebles, who was like one of like the real like, uh, you know, how do you say it? You know, he's just like a real badass guy. He's an, an anarchist in a way, and uh, you know, African American anarchist, a poet, and uh, a writer. To direct this movie called Sweet Sweetback, Badass's Song. And, you know, yep. I, I was a kid when this thing came out, 71. But I remember the, the weird subliminal posters that were all over the place. Like, what is this? What is this? You know? <laughs> and when I finally saw it, it had an earth oh. on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing. I'd always heard about this film and had that title, you know, Sweet Sweet Dick's Badass Song. Okay. And it's like, you know, 14 A's and 14 S's. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, I love black exploitation. Let me check this out. I heard so much about it. Maybe I heard some of the soundtrack. And I'm like, what a piece of shit. It's just like yeah, drugged out experimental head film. I just, I don't know. It was horrible. And I understand another company is going to be putting it out again soon. So who knows? We might have been reviewing it, both of us. But oof, bad, bad film. I always hated this one. But it took me years to see it, and originally it was like from all the commercials. I was like, "Wow, it should be great." But you know, because he is who he is, and because yeah. it was sort of early on in the black exploitation genre, might even kicked it off. Uh, you know, especially in the black community, they look at it like, "Oh yeah, this is great. This is a real statement." For the rest of it, it's it's a horrible film. It's like watching the worst of Godard. You know, the most experimental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was very, yeah. It did uh, have a lot of sex in it for those those sleaziest. Yes, Acolytes well, of mine. They're banging some hooker. That was like really. <laughs> and it uh, looked realistic too. It was it's very realistic. <laughs> well, but at, but at the same time, around the same time, Robert Downey Jr.'s dad, Robert Downey, uh, was also doing these kind of things. And Putney Swope was a really popular. Again, another kind of experimental movie. Um. Uh, its tagline for the poster was "Truth and the Soul Movie." You know, uh, yeah, because like Robert Downey Jr., like Iron Man, the guy who makes three hundred million dollars a movie, he's half black. Everybody, um, but no, <laughs> it's true. Whoa, really? Ooh. I'm not gonna watch another Marvel movie. Oh no! Yeah, where were yeah. those dickheads that said they were gonna boycott Star Wars because they had the black guy in the cast? Are you gonna boycott Iron Man now and the Avengers? Woo! <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love idiots. Robert Downey's <laughs> half black. Wow, the world knows. Oh shit. Um, yeah, that'll be on Yahoo tomorrow. Blog site reveals Robert Downey is partially black. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I'll never look at him the same way again. But, <laughs> but, but his dad, his dad was a really unusual experimental filmmaker who always managed to find funding. I don't like any of his movies. Sorry, <laughs> they're 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 experimental. And you know, guys, don't get me wrong. I do like some Godard. I do like some experimental oh, films. Some, I like yeah. experimental. I like Lydia Lunch. So you Lydia know, Lunch is sick. great. 
That was Lydia yeah. Lunch. Okay, there you go. Yeah, we agree on that. But like something like putting smoke, which is not really working. Build as an us against a man kind of movie. You know, you, know, you, you mentioned Lydia Lunch. Hell with Lydia Lunch. I love Richard Kern. <laughs> I I like Richard Kern some of his stuff, but uh, um. But yeah, it's this is our, <laughs> yeah, we're getting off topic. Yeah, well, this is what we do, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's, I want to note this, though. I want to note Robert Downey a senior as a, a you know as a filmmaker who was uh, not only getting work, the guy's stuff was getting produced, and he was allowed to direct his films with his vision, which was really interesting, like Melvin Van Peebles, who we. We we talked about uh, recently uh, a few minutes ago, and so this is really interesting thing going on here. We're talking about very 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 low budget producers giving them money and not much. Oh, and you know but, what? I just thought of another relatively early uh, crossover thing was Live and Let Die because we talked about that during the Bond films uh, show, mm-hmm. and you had Yafikado in there, and you had, you know it was. A big deal at the time is that this black exploitation thing was really just starting to kick off, and here it is in one of the most popular global series of you know spy films. Uh, and it was very much a black exploitation film in most respects, except that you know you had this English guy running around, and uh, that was before J.D. Pepper, right? He's in that one yet. Yeah, uh, and James yeah. Seymour. But, you know, otherwise, it was basically a black exploitation film. Uh, and it certainly exposed these sort of things to a wider audience again. Um, and I but, think yeah. a better direction, that could have been a better film. It's certainly fine. Yeah, it's fine. I re- I remember, yeah, I remember Yafet Koto told me, because I had asked him this, and it's on YouTube somewhere, in the, uh, an interview I did with him. I had asked him, so what did it feel like? You know, to get this role. And after a long, long time of him thinking, he's the kind of guy he thinks a lot before he answers. He said, it was a lot of money. It was a big production. I went everywhere. (laughs) So thank you. Okay. (laughs) I think he was overwhelmed by the fact that that was so big. Yeah. You know, for anybody. It's funny, you know, know, just a little OT for a second. Anybody who's ever worked on a Bond movie that I ever spoke to said they'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. yeah. They do spend a hell of a lot of money on this. And it shows. You know, sometimes it's, uh, especially in the 70s, it all kind of goes to the nose candy. Uh, but, you yeah, know, it yeah. really does show on screen in the Bond films. You get tell the production values. You get tell, kind of like with Joe D'Amato, but that's why I was on a much, much smaller scale. You could tell they actually did travel the world, at least with a skeleton crew of some sort, to film all this crap. And it's with the Bond film. It's usually, I mean, I could picture uh, catering service being like champagne and caviar, at least for the the upper yeah. echelon there, you know, the, the top stars. Uh, it's that sort of a production. So yeah. But anyway, um, oh, the harder they come. Uh, should we name drop that one? That was another yeah. big one. Jimmy uh, Reggae. Yeah, uh, produced by Chris Blackwell, who uh, started up Island Records. You know, U two and all that other mistakes, but. Um, Jimmy Cliff, Desmond Decker, you know, Israelites. There was a lot of Toots and the Maytels, a lot of good people in this. This is a, a film filmed in the islands of Jamaica, um, starring Jimmy Cliff. Um, yep. And this is a really interesting movie uh, about, well, it's like, it's not 
black exploitation as we're used to. So it's like no. what's going on in the islands. They had their own problems in Jamaica, the crime yeah. and drugs. I still heard boys, but, yep. But uh, I wanted to name drop uh, The Harder They Come, which is a really... And if you lived in a New York general area back in the early 70s to the mid-70s, this thing was a perennial midnight movie. Yes. Yeah, it was always it, one of the big deals that you would see like Rocky Horror, and you would see, I think, a Racerhead later on, and you would see, uh, like I said, The Harder They Come, and there was one or two others that were constantly always playing at midnight. Um, memory escapes because I was pretty young then. I just remember seeing it all the time. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, so anyway, since this is a subject that is kind of fast and funky, unless there's any more general stuff that you want to throw out there about the background. Yeah. Um, Let's go. Yeah. All right. So I just got I went through a list of stuff that I have in my collection, which is quite a bit. Uh, so I'll just throw out some titles and whatever, and we'll see where we go from there. Uh, okay. One of my favorites for a long time it may not be my favorite anymore, but at the time back, you know, maybe ten years ago, I would have definitely said it was. Oh yeah, this is one of my tops. Uh, it's Chuck Turner, Isaac Hayes. I think it was one of his very few roles. Uh, and Yafikado's in it. Michelle Nichols, Scatman Crothers, you know, who did uh, Hong Kong Fui. Uh Dick Miller's in the damn thing. It is loads of fun. Basically, he's a skip tracer, uh, which is if you go, you know, you're out, whatever, on bail, you, you run out of town, you've got a process served on you, wherever the hell, these guys will go and chase you down. It's like a bounty hunter almost, but it's really more for process serving and things like that. Put you back under arrest, you know, get you for whatever. And it's so, you know, the plot is kind of negligible, except for the fact that you get to see Nichelle Nichols as a, uh, a madam. Like I was out in the street selling pussies since and I was fifteen, you bitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, it's like, wow, that's a horror. Okay, uh, but, you know, it's it's a fun film. Uh, you know, Nate Dinwiddie. I mean, you, you, that's the character's name, obviously. But uh, if you see it, chances are you will get a big kick out of it. Is it like one of the greatest films ever made? Hardly, but it's loads of fun, and it's got a decent soundtrack once again by Isaac Hayes. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, okay. I, I wanted to add, though, that uh, if, if all you know, Isaac Hayes in, in, in movies and acting was uh, as a Duke in Escape from New York, he's much, much better oh. in this. Yes. And yeah, that, that was that just really, yeah, it really kind of wasted him. Um, anybody could have did that part. Uh, yep. Just I think they used him for iconographic purposes. It was. Um, I mean, I love John Carpenter. I love that film, but his part in it is negligible. He's barely even in it. Chuck Turner, he is... I met the guy. He's a great guy. He was a great guy. Uh, Really nice. He's actually one of the nicest stars that I met, especially in the Monk Black Exploitation stars. Uh, And and I've met several of those. Uh, This was pretty much like his personality. I mean, the way you see him in the film, that's kind of how Isaac is. Uh, So... It's a really if you're into him, if you're into his music, obviously you know a lot of us everybody knows Shaft, but you know those of us from certain generation grew up on his stuff. Uh, like what, what was his uh, Walk On By where he extended to like 12 minutes and put a funky bass line in it, which of course yeah, later yeah. on they stole from a bunch of rap songs and you know really really good stuff. Watch stacks. Uh, this guy was something else. He didn't do a lot of movies. Most of his stuff was just concentrating on the music, and then he had his radio show later on. Uh, of course, he did that ridiculous thing as Chef uh, on South Park. But back in the day, <laughs> yeah. he did maybe two movies, uh, and yeah. this was his um, this was his really good one. This is the one you need to say. Um, yeah. Cotton comes to yeah. Harlem. Cotton comes to Harlem. Mm-hmm. He used to show all the time on like TBS or TNT. I got a big kick out of it. 
a little bit more um, not even political. It's more of kind of a social commentary on uh, problems inside the ghetto being uh, their susceptibility to fake religions. You know, everything from like you know the mothership connection kind of a thing to you know actual preachers. Uh, and of course, there was a whole thing going on about drugs, and you had people like Godfrey Cambridge, who you see a lot in Ramesh and Jock. They were big at that time. Calvin Lockhart, Lockhart well, yeah. he wound yeah. up being uh, the Beast Must Die. Have anybody ever seen that one? The great, uh, Brit, well, great, enjoyable British horror one, the one with the werewolf break. Um, Red Fox is in the damn thing. Cleveland Little, who was in uh, Blazing Saddles of all things. You know, fun little picture. It's probably a little bit less um, overblown than most black exploitation. It's not as much fun in that respect, but there's a lot of comedy in it. I mean, just the fact that they're self-referential enough that there's a scene where they go and smash into a watermelon truck. You remember that? I was like, wow, yeah, that, that's yeah. like I can't believe they even did that. But you know, it's just they're, they're, having, they're poking fun at stereotypes. It was loads of fun. Well, this uh, movie has a, a great freaking poster. I always remember the yes. poster all the New York era. And the other thing was, I name dropped a couple other people earlier, uh, uh, Bill Cosby and, and so and so. Yep. For you know, being early influential people, Ossie Davis. I'm sorry, I didn't remember yes. him at the time, but yes, Ossie Davis, who was a, a primarily a theatrical actor, was mm-hmm. uh, Ruby D his wife. Yep. And uh, Ossie Davis was very, very well respected on the boards doing live uh, live shows. And he would do occasional live television. You know, that's where people got, you know, uh, uh, where they got, you know, they recognized him from. And right. um, he did some serious TV, you know, like, you know, the Westerns, you know, Virginia, whatever, but not too much. But uh, when he got handed to direct the direction chores of this thing, I'm like, what? And, yeah, <laughs> and he's, he's in it, too. But this yes, is like, is. it's a very strange movie too because it's it like, is. it's very quirky. Yeah, it's quirky. It's uh and and the strangest thing of all was seeing this, you know, in, in my younger days and like, you know, twelve o'clock in the afternoon or something, you'd be turning on like T V S or something, there was this freaking thing movie playing. I'm like, what the hell is this? Um <laughs> uh, then there is a TNT Jackson, which is a really cheap uh, Filipino job. Um, I think they were commenting on films I'll get to next, which is the Cleopatra Jones films. Uh, somebody named Jeannie Bell, uh, and there's really nobody in it because this really is like a low-budget Filipino job. Uh, a little bit of like really bad kung fu, you know, a lot of high kicking and stuff. But you know, for what it is, it's fun. Um, then uh, actually on the same disc, it was like a cheapy disc. Came uh, Get Christy Love, which was the film version of the I think it was a TV show uh, with Teresa yeah. Graves, who was actually first on Laughing. That's another breakthrough thing with Teresa Graves on Laughing. Um, so she, you know, once again, she's like you know, whatever the hell, a private eye or something. They're all kind of the same thing. Usually, unless you're dealing with something like Superfly, it involves some sort of private eye. Or you know, ex whatever the hell, uh, ex military guy or something, and they will get involved with some kind of drug deal gone wrong that they got to go and bust a ring or something, some kind of pimp thing, which is usually a sideline before the drug thing. Okay, let's bust these pimps while I'm on the way. Uh, or well, they will have some well, kind of well, thing where they're fighting. Go ahead. Well, get Christy Love. Only you know, I always in, in remembrance. I always thought it lasted longer than it did, but it's only it was only lasted one season. Yeah, 74 to 75. And and the funny thing about that was it was, you know, because of the big interest in all this stuff that this was even, you know, green-lighted, green-lit. Uh, 
Harry Guardino was, you know, her, uh, he liked her, you know, like her uh, uh, commanding officer. Right. It was, it was TV, you know, yeah. and, and it was interesting. Um, but yes, I, I think that would not have existed if it were not for Cleopatra Jones. Yes. Tamara Dobson, who was... Yeah. She was a very tall, pretty model. I don't know that she did that many films outside of Cleopatra Jones films, per se, uh, but she's striking looking. And she's not much of an actress, which is another reason you've in too many, too many films. Uh, and yeah. in the first one, uh, she has, of all people, Shelley Winters she's playing against. Oh, and she yeah. is the... Yeah, she's the female, uh, you know, what do you want to call it, drug don assassin, which is hilarious in itself. Uh, Bernie Casey's in it. He's another one that popped up a lot back then. Uh, Antonio Fargus. Fucking Huggy Bear's in this thing. I think it was before Huggy Bear, before uh, Star Trek Match. Uh, Brenda Sykes, before before the Jeffersons in 227. Uh, Don Cornelius from Soul Train. That was another thing. That's another show that was big. All of a sudden, you got the Black American Bandstand on TV. I remember watching Soul Train all the time as a kid, just because they had better music. <laughs> uh, and Frankie Crocker, anybody who knows uh, New York, uh, you know, yeah. urban uh, radio stations, wasn't he on? He was on uh, BLS, right? Not Kiss. Yeah, uh, he was on BLS. Yeah. Yep. And as uh, the role from, uh, you know, the, the what the hell is that show? Jefferson's. Yeah. Yep. So you know, it had decent cast. The second one kind of fell on its ass. It's much better, I think, though. You like the second one? I think the second one's much better. Really? I thought the second one was a piece of crap. Because like the first one was like a typical <laughs> black exploitation, right? She's there. She's going, you know, she busts Huggy Bear, and you know, he, she makes him flush all his drugs down the toilet, and he's like, "Oh man, no, that's all my money." And then she's like, you know, basically, it's all typical the tropes that you're going to see in a black exploitation film. There they are. It's loads of fun. It's kind of like a, a half-ass but more campy female take on like a truck turner, let's say, just from what, once we named already. Whereas Cleopatra's Zone's the casino with gold. It was like. I think they were trying to do a sort of a Bond film, but mixed with some of that, like the Italian fumettis, like um, uh, the, the Mario Bava one, like the Abolic or something. And it just doesn't fucking work. I thought it was awful. Uh, Norman Fells in it, Mr. Roper from <laughs> Three's Company. Stella Stevens was in the thing. Uh, she was now, okay, we don't have uh, Shelley Winters. Who are we going to get this? That over the top in camp. Yeah, so throw Stella Stevens in. Why not? Uh, the one thing that's interesting about this one is Max Julian, the guy who was the Mac, uh, was the author of this source story uh, and a co-producer of the original Cleopatra Jones. But in this one, he said, no, I'm not going to participate in this one. So he got token credit for uh, having this, you know, based on characters by, you know, whatever. Uh, So that also said why this one didn't work. I had the impression that this one was just kind of a a boulderized, like, almost like the suits nowadays. Like the white suits came in and said, oh, I think we can do this one better than you and just kind of fucked it up. But you think it was better. Why do you think it was better? I think it was better because Shelley Winters isn't isn't in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that helps. That that definitely helps. And I will say that uh, Tani Ni uh, Tian, who was in a lot of uh, kung fu films at the time, uh, mostly yeah. as you know the hooker, the, the sultry girlfriend, or whatever, uh, is in this one. So you know, there's a little bit of eye candy for sure. And not having yeah, sure. there's definitely doesn't hurt. But <laughs> but go ahead. No, but and, I, this, this movie, <laughs> and, and this movie had a great poster, but much better than the first one. So. If the posters means the movie's better, yeah, yeah. Um, no, seriously though, um, I like the production values. I think what they yeah. did was the first one actually bloody well made money, yeah. so they're like, "Wow, 
this movie made money. Maybe we have something here. But the problem with the sequel, I think, in my mind, is that they cleaned it up a little bit. It's not as yes. gritty as the first one was. It feels PG. It feels white. You know, it's like yeah. They watered yeah. it down. They, threw it, they took all the liquor out and left it with the milk. It's like a brandy Alexander with no brandy. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah. eh. Okay. Yeah. It it's like, it all. I really it's hate like that somebody stuff. gives you a really good bottle of wine and it turns out to be vinegar because it's too old. Yeah. Exactly right. So yeah. uh, then we probably come to what is the – everybody knows this film, but everybody loves the damn thing. It's Shaft. Uh, Richard Roundtree, basically, I don't think he did another role except for variations on the Shaft character. You know, uh, Shaft in Africa, Shaft's Big Score, the Shaft television series, which was kind of short-lived. Uh, you know, it was just always one shaft after another with this guy. Um, Moses Gunn was in this. He pops up in a lot of stuff. Uh, Charles Chaffee as uh, Lieutenant Vic Androzzi. Loads of fun. Anybody that's seen this film knows why we get a kick out of these people. Uh, Christopher St. John, who was in that druggy Code Red film, uh, Top of the Heat. Um, and then, of course, there's somebody named Margaret Warnke as Linda, the one with the groovy boobs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the film is iconic, if I hate that word, but you know, it, it really kind of encapsulates the genre in a lot of ways for a reason. Now, it's got the great funky soundtrack, there's no question, but it's not as funky as stuff that would come later because it's still kind of got that 60s vibe. Sure. There's a little bit of lounge to it, you know, uh, especially when they go into what, not Bumpy's place, but uh, the, the lounge where the, the gay bartender is that said the groovy boobs line. Um I forget the name of that cafe, whatever it was. But anyway, uh, I listened to the soundtrack like thousands of times over the years. It's like I don't even remember the damn names of these things. Um, it was the problem with it in retrospect. I've seen so many black exploitation films, and the more urban ones, which we'll get to later, um, is that it feels kind of stayed. It's like because it's, it's pretty early on. We're talking about like what 1971. Um, there is a level of propriety that you'll find in something like Across 110th Street, which is just, I don't know, it feels a little bit antithetical to what black exploitation became. At the time, it was probably just the right amount. It was just enough to go and shock the white audiences and get them interested and make the black audiences cheer, you know, give them something to root for. Uh, you definitely had a lot of stereotype break in, you know, the whole, his run in with the Italian mobster in the, in the bar, his, the, even the opening scene where he can't get a cab and it's like yelling at him because white mother, uh, <laughs> you know, he's having run ins with the cops, but they kind of have respect them. He's having run ins with the mobsters, but they kind of have respect. Them. They, they've got this whole thing about the black Panthers effectively, you know, cause they got that the revolutionary group that's trying to get guns, you know, the whole thing going on. But again, because of this, it's a little bit too, not even topical. It just feels like they're trying to be very cautious about where they lay the lines. It's like not really walking on eggshells. They are kind of like walking through like with a big uh, manly stride, if you will. But they're being careful not to knock over the china on the way. You know what I'm saying? If you get the metaphor. Uh, so oh. that's my problem with the film. But that said, I've always loved the film. I've always loved the soundtrack, and it's always been a favorite. And I can certainly understand why people think, oh, yeah, this is like the sine qua non of exploitation. Well, well, you know, it's among them. I mean, Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks is uh, credited as a director. He, he did a lot of these things, uh, some of the better ones. And Gordon Parks was a, a jazz musician and a right. uh, 
photographer. He was known as a photographer. He did a lot of photography of like key civil rights movement things. Right. And how he and he did some documentaries, but how he got a feature film is I don't know. You know, like it's a whole other show. You almost got one like got, a token. Okay, like, we'll say you're the you're the director. You sit here and we'll do it. You know, because who knows? Yeah, yeah. Know it's sort of like but. you're black. You you're well known for these photographs. You did documentaries. Hey, you played jazz. Direct this movie. Um, <laughs> um, I hate to say it, but maybe that's what happened. But um, no, you're right. There's a very possible scenario, especially at that time. Yeah, yeah. I think he did a fine job. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little. I think things that stand down in it for me after all these years is like Moses Gunn as Bumpy, mm-hmm. you know, one of the guys in his you know, Moses Gunn, he was a perennial in these pictures and, and for years afterwards as a familiar face on television. But Charles Kiyaki, who also did a lot, a lot of TV work, probably more than he should have. Yeah. Jeff's, um, <laughs> you know, commanding lieutenant. Um, he's in this. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fun movie. Um, it's not as good as Superfly because I have a really soft spot for Superfly. I was going to say Superfly is one I don't really like that much. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because nothing works about it, but I like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you recognize but, uh, that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you, you were right though before. You said Shaft's big score, Shaft in Africa, and. Um, I believe, I believe, uh, I didn't want to over-research the show, there was a short-lived Shaft television series. Right, I mentioned that. Yeah, I think also, it was about six episodes, maybe, maybe four. It was, yeah. so. Also with the, you know, these guys. Um, and uh, it was rebonded, it was rebooted with Samuel L. L. Jackson. Yes. Where he played Roundtree's Nephew, and Roundtree sh- showed up in the movie as Chef. Yeah, so that that was interesting, and uh, yeah, he showed up as John Chef, and you know the nephew's name John Chef. I thought it was okay the reboot. Um, who was it? John Singleton, somebody I don't like his work too much, and yeah. um, I thought it was one of his better movies. Saying that, <laughs> well, that's kind of no. easy. What are you gonna do? With, what are you gonna do? Like Fantastic Four? I mean. <laughs> Well, no, I like. I just, I just, I dislike a lot of Singleton's films. Yeah, not, yeah, he's not that great. Not for no reason. I don't think he. I think he's way, way, way overrated. You know, it's sort of like. Well, not as overrated as Spike Lee, but we won't go there. Oh, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> really, oh, I don't get the cult of Spike Lee. I'm sorry. You know, we might lead into that. It depends how long the show goes. It depends but how anyway. long things go. But anyway, uh, so is there anything else you want to close out on Shaft or, or the Shaft? No, films? I think we got huh? the, the trio of Shaft movies discussed. Yeah. Um, so then, and just so you know, anybody that hasn't seen the film, God help you, I can imagine who would be on this earth at this time in, the, of, you know, in, in history. But, you know, oh. basically he's a gumshoe and he gets caught up in all this crap. Uh, like I said, with the Black Panthers, with the mob, whatever. And then as you go through the series, different things happen. Uh, the one that stands out for me, not as a good one, but just as a funny one, was when he ended up getting kidnapped to go off to Africa to try to save some, uh, I don't know what the hell he was. He was like some prince's daughter or some crap from oil. Yeah, yeah. And there was like a white slavery ring going on. It got really kind of ugly towards the end. But there's some I, 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 I will say this: Richard Roundtree wears a light leather jacket really well. Oh yeah, 
No, he was a good-looking guy, and he really, you know, definitely was stylish as shit. And even when we met him, okay, yes, he was a little bit stiff and serious, but he's still a good-looking guy. I mean, he held up. He didn't, like, you know, fall apart or anything. Um, and that's probably the reason that the film works. You know, he's, he's a commanding presence. Uh, and he has that authority that somebody like a James Earl Jones has that um, not so much a Calvin Locker, but uh, William Marshall has when we get to the Black Hill films. That oh, sort yes. Of, you know, so uh, it works. Uh, a little more earthy than that, obviously, but, you know, same idea. So anyway, here's a real left-field one, because since we were talking about stuff like, you know, Sweet Sweetback and all, Ganja and Hess, which mm. came out, it, it actually, this was, was kind of a, that up. I'm glad you did, yeah. It's a difficult film, and it had a difficult history. Uh, I remember back in the 80s and 90s, they had under all these stupid Boulderized versions like Blood Couple and I don't. There's a couple of them. Really short and, versions. Yeah, they were super short. They made no freaking sense. And then finally, you know, they kept cobbling together. Okay, we got some more footage. Let's put these two versions together. We'll make it bigger. And finally, somebody I think made the most complete version out there, which she's on DVD for years now, uh, which is the Ganja and Hess version. Um, Gun was kind of a problematic character. I don't know too much about him other than the fact that he was very violent-tempered and uh, not just activist, but divisive. Uh, and he had a lot of run-ins with the people that were financing the film and you know, the actors and so on and so forth, uh, to the point where I, I heard something like he threw something out the window or, or tried to throw somebody out the window of like a, a third-story building. I mean, he, the guy's nuts. Uh, he was very, very an angry man. Uh, and the film doesn't make a fuck of a lot of sense, maybe because of that, maybe because he's so uptight and disjointed. Uh, he's trying to go into this bit about, you know, African religion, basically, and Yoruba and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and there's this whole business about vampires, but it's not really about vampires. It's more about the idea of living forever, uh, forever, mm -hmm. rather, and being like African gods, and you're, oh, wait, you're really my queen, that you don't know it, you're reincarnated. Uh, and yet it really doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And there's this whole subtext where uh, Gunn himself is in there as like his manservant, but is he really betraying him? And uh, the one interesting thing to me always was I always loved uh, what's happening, especially in the beginning, the early seasons. And who's in this fucking thing? What, Mabel King? <laughs> no, Mama's in this thing. Uh it's a strange film, and having seen it in the longer version, which is now I don't know, it's over two hours, I think. Uh, it's over it, It's still, I mean, yes, it makes a lot more sense than it did when I saw it in its 70-minute and 85-minute versions, or 93-minute, where it was, but it still doesn't make that much sense to me. I was like, okay, I see where some of this is going, and other stuff is like, what? All right, fine, I, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's not really a horror film. It's not really a black exploitation film. It's not really a experimental film, but it's got elements of all three. And I don't really know what the guy was trying to say with this. I don't know if he knew what he was trying to say with it. Um, and yet, it was a, a, a focus of years worth of, you know, essentially anthropological research to try and track down the proper version of this thing that was finally going to make sense, and it still doesn't make any sense. So, what, what you, what's your take on this one? Well, uh, yeah, I was really interested. Interested in it because of Dwayne Jones, first of all. Uh, Dwayne Jones, we know as Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. He was our hero. He was the man that we right. followed. And and, I and there's another one for you. Jones. Another groundbreaking thing. You got a black hero there saving his not really girlfriend, but you know this white girl. So there you go. 
Of course, at the end, he gets White shot. Anyway, but that's yeah, another story. He was saving yep. everybody. And, and, and yeah. that was like, Night of the Living Dead uh, is now like the first zombie film of its time. It's the first fucked up ending movie. I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know how we have a inter- uh, history of fucked up ending movies? That's the <laughs> big daddy of them all. That's where I we go back started, to like... Oh, it kicked yeah. off the 70s, because that was the one thing I really liked about the 70s was it was kind of like real life, where you don't really get to happy endings often. Uh, yeah. It's nice when you do, but usually it's like, no, that's not kind of how it works out, especially when you're you know, going against the grain, making your own way. Yeah, okay, you're going to get your own way, but there's always going to be pushing, pushing back at you, and eventually you know, you're going to fail, and this is what's going to go down. You know, it's just a choice yeah, of... If there's some, yeah, if there's something to thank George Romero for, it's for kick-starring that whole sub-sub-sub-genre of, like, it's not going to end the way you want it to. Right. Uh, but anyway, Dwayne Jones is uh, from that movie, and... Uh, so I, I always liked him in that. He's another guy who did a lot of theater, and um, he did not do too many films. So I was really interested right. to see. And like you, as you described uh, moments ago, this has been available like really, really short versions and then really long versions. I don't think any of the ones I've seen have pleased me. I think they were right. all tedious. Yep. And we just spoke about this guy a few minutes ago. Mr. Spike Lee remade this movie uh, last year as The Sweet Blood of Jesus. The Sweet Blood of Jesus. <laughs> I didn't even hear about that one. Wow, that went under the radar. <laughs> Wait, where was you? You didn't know about this? I didn't know about that one, no. No, it was, it was released. Uh, so how did that York. come out? <laughs> it showed up in New York at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, as uh, like a limited run. Yeah. Uh, it's it was on Netflix for a while, and I think it still is. It's called Da D A Sweet yeah, Blood yeah. of Jesus. It's long. It's a remake yeah. of this, and it's uh, how could you remake this film? It's like making Sweet Sweet back all over again. The film didn't make any sense in the first place. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not very good. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, so anyway, unless you got more points to make on Gadget Hass. Um no, 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 but it's. it's Great to see, you know, those people who want who were curious about what yes. else Dwayne Jones did. This is a good movie to see. It's a good movie to see too because it's different. You know, it's it's oh, yeah. not the usual slam bang. It's, it's definitely yeah. you know somebody had a vision. It, it probably wasn't successful. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I would hesitate to call it a thinking man's film because right. you think about it all you want and this still doesn't make any fucking sense. But uh, that's the vibe that he's going for. It's not yeah. a, you know, like I said, it's not a horror film. It's not an exploitation film. It's a who knows what the hell this is. He's trying to say something, but you don't know what it is. He doesn't know what it is. So there you go. Uh, so therefore, <laughs> it's important. It's important because it's, 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 we will never see anything like this for a long True. time. True. Uh, so then we come to the Blackula films, which I just <laughs> love William Marshall. William Marshall is, to me, uh, the James Earl Jones of that era. I mean, yeah, Jones was around, obviously, uh, but I think he really didn't achieve his sort of stentorian status until the time of Conan the Barbarian and going after that. At this point, mm-hmm. he was still more like, 
I hesitate to say like a Yafik Koto, but he was kind of on that level to me. You know, I was like, okay, James Earl Jones, Yafik Koto, same idea. Uh, Bernie Casey to a lesser extent. Uh, William Marshall was grand and theatrical, and he spoke very properly with a deep barrel. He was like a Christopher Lee, basically, which is why they picked him for this role, I think. He was essentially the black Christopher Lee. Uh, and he pulled it off. It wasn't like you know he came in jiving and shucking, yo. No, no, no. He was a very distinguished man. Um, you know, Prince Mama Walde, Bonetta McGee's in this. She was in um, uh, the famous western there with Klaus Kinski and uh, Jean-Louis Trompignon. Uh, what was it Great Silence? Um, yes. You know, the first one is much better than the second one, uh, but I like the second one a lot. It's not like the Cleopatra Jones thing. Um, Thalmus Rasulalo is in the first one, too. He's basically the, the girlfriend. Uh, uh, he's Vanetta's boyfriend, and he's a cop, and he's trying to figure out why the hell you know she's so involved with Prince Mama Walde here, and there's something, something fishy about that dude. Uh, Falmus would show up in a lot of black exploitation stuff. Usually as the B cast. I think he only got a star role once or twice, like Cool Breeze. Uh, but I always liked him. Um, basically, the second one, instead of being okay, the first one he gets, you know, they're, they're African princes. They visit, unfortunately, Count Dracula to try to get you know financial aid or whatever. Uh, and you know, again, very classy. You know, they're having a proper dinner, and you know, it's like a proper. Uh, what do you want to call it? Like a, a greeting between nations yeah. and all. This. Yeah, and all of a sudden he goes and fucks them over and bites them, and you know, takes his wife he and whatever. Insult, oh, he insults him too. He insults him. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah. He insults him horribly, and that's why he gets that name, Blackula. That was Dracula making fun of him, uh, and. You know, when he arises, that's why he's still looking for his wife, who Dracula took from him. Uh, and he finds her, he thinks he finds her reincarnated in Vanetta McGee. Uh, it's a good film. Yes, it's very urban. It's very much a horror film. It reminds you a lot of the Night Stalker movies, if not the Night Stalker series, you know, being the Night Stalker and Night Strangler. Um, and yet, I don't know. There's something about it that really, really works. It's more than a black exploitation and more than just a horror. It's it rises above both somehow by being both, uh, and probably a lot of that relies on the performances, especially of Marshall himself. Um, when you get to Scream Black of the Scream, which is the sequel, it's a lot more cheesy. It's a lot more kind of in your face, but Marshall's still the same way. Uh, he's a little bit less screen time. Let's put it that way. But Pam Greer's in this one. Um, Craig T. Nelson, coach, is in the damn thing. Uh, basically, it involves voodoo now, and he, he kind of comes in. I think I remember he was showing around African art, and they were discussing that in terms of like you know the voodoo stuff that was going down. Uh, so again, he's still got that regal presence. It's just the film feels a little bit more like an urban, or should I say, more urban version of the Count Yorga films. Uh, so. You know, yes, it doesn't work the same way Blackula does, but it's not bad. It's, it's still a decent film. Uh, so, you have anything you want to say about these films? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, I agree with you. William Marshall's terrific. I, again, another stage actor mm-hmm. uh, who graduated to film, and uh, the guy, the guy's magnificent. Um, yeah. The first movie is surprisingly workable, you know, with its low budget terrain. I think one of the more interesting things to me was that the director, William Crane, who the hell is this guy, right? Well, William Crane is one of the few black, or are we going to call him African-American? It's just, 
King George. Uh, <laughs> and he's just some schlub that gets like you know pushed around by her and knocked off the screen in like five minutes. Uh, <laughs> you know, Sid Haig is in the damn thing. Of course, he popped up in everything at that time. Uh, Alan Arbus from MASH is in it. It's mm-hmm. a fun little film. They, they're great. Uh, they also start doing great trailers at this point. I have a, a disc that's all radio trailers for black exploitation, uh, and it's like they call her coffee and she'll cream you. <laughs> yeah, I was I was about to, I was about to comment on that. It's funny you mention <laughs> that because like nowadays, like what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great stuff. I mean, actually, you mentioned Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde has one of the greatest trailers and radio ads ever made. You, if you hear this thing, you're like, wow, this is the funniest thing ever. I've got to see this. And yet you watch the film, and it's the most turgid piece of shit ever. Uh, but anyway, getting back oh, to her. Not ever. It's Blackenstein. Yeah, it's really, oh, yeah, you're right. Blackenstein's worse. Uh, but anyway, we'll get to this. Uh, so she did a couple of them. Coffee was their first one. I liked that one a lot. Foxy Brown, I still liked a lot. Again, the problem okay. with Pam Greer movies at that point was, for some reason, she always manages to either get raped or damn close to it. Uh, it's like, wow, this is our hero? <laughs> Shouldn't she be able to like, you know, kick him off? Especially nowadays with like the post-90s uh, Charlie's Angels thing where, oh, every woman's got a gun and they're going to kick every guy's ass and all this bullshit. It's a very good point you brought up because, uh, yeah, she's always thought of as this very strong heroine. And she and is. Yeah, which is, you know, I'm sorry, you're going to have to help me out with this one. Which is the one she's trying to avenge her brother or her lover who was off, and she she gets drugged and nearly That's sold Foxy. to slavery. Foxy Which Brown. one was that? Foxy yeah, Brown. yeah. And it's almost a hard movie to watch. And like yeah. for a while, it's like, oh, she's well aware she's being drugged. Okay. <laughs> yeah, actually, I used to think that okay, Foxy Brown was her best one. I'm like. No, it was so disturbing watching that exact plot point. I'm like, and it goes on ah. for a bit. It's not like five minutes. So I'm like, no, nah, I think Coffee's my favorite of hers, really. And that was the first film. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Jack Hill did a couple of these. Arthur Marks did some. Um, Antonio Fargus was in this again. We got Huggy Bear and uh, Foxy Brown and Sid Haig again. It's, um, I, I guess you kind of encapsulated it uh, because the one I was going to get to next involves uh, Fred Williamson, so, uh, as well as her. So, is there anything else you wanted to say about the Pam Greer movies? I mean, for the good or for bad? Well, you know, a really interesting thing is that you just name-dropped somebody, and, and I, I've been working on this for a while, this show. And then okay. Arthur Marks, who worked on a lot of these black exploitation films. A lot of them. Yeah. ones with Pam. is the son of Groucho. Really? Because he spelled yes. it differently. But, you know, probably deliberately, but yes, I didn't even know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the son of Groucho and uh, some woman named Ruth Johnson. She's probably a vaudevillian. Yeah. And um, it's hilarious because uh, the guy's from Montclair, New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey. And, and, you know, he, he, he actually worked on My Three Sons, All in the Family. It makes sense, doesn't it? And um, <laughs> before hitting... And uh, it's funny, y'all. It's like, I'm trying to imagine how, what do they say, six degrees of Kevin Bacon? Yes. So six degrees of Groucho Marx (laughs) leads to Pam Greer. I don't know, man. But uh, 
like I said in the beginning, a lot of these films, especially these ones we're discussing so far, are helmed by white men. There's a preponderance of films by Arthur Marks, by Jack Hill, by Graydon Clark. Uh, they were really active in this genre for whatever reason. I guess they proved they could do it. And I'm like, okay, here he is again. You know, like I said, the Sam Sherman thing. Ah, this guy directed five of them already. Hey, do him for a sixth. He's, he's dependable. Um, anyway, so then we come to. Well, yeah, Fred Williamson, yeah. and the only reason I'm bringing him up directly is because he was with my Pam Greer section, because she's in Bucktown. Uh, actually, when I met Fred, I actually mentioned that film to him, because he had a bunch of stills out, and it's funny, because he had some, like, playgirl shots of himself and all these shit. I'm like, the hell? Yeah. And I was like, you got any from Bucktown? He looked, he gave it a dirty look, like, kind of like, yeah, okay, right, okay, I'll carry that. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, because this film is ridiculous. It's got Pam Greer in it. It's got Carl Weathers in it, who would become big later, stuff like Action Jackson and Predator and whatever else. Uh, uh, Rocky something. Rocky. Yep, Rocky. Uh, Thalmus Rasul is in it again. Uh, it's basically the guy, once again, it's his typical plot. He comes back there to bury his brother. What the hell's going on? He starts running this bar, and of course he runs into all this corruption. You know, the, the white cops have to get him and whatever the hell else. And he pulls together his old gang, which includes Thalmus there, to go and like rout them. They do, and then he gets betrayed by him too. It's like, okay, now he's out there dealing drugs, and I got to stop him. So you know, it's it's actually a really stupid film, but you know, interesting for the type. If you're into the typical action films, like, okay, there's enough twists and turns in here. There's enough. Um, I don't want to say sex, but you know, there's enough of a love interest. There's enough whatever going down to keep you interested through the whole film. So for a Fred Williamson film, it's not that bad. But you know, <laughs> it was kind of a joke. The, the way he reacted was like, "Yeah, okay, I'm gonna have that. Get out of here." <laughs> uh, Fred, Fred Williamson, I, I, I don't know how do I parcel this out? He's one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done. He's a piece of work. I met him. He's yeah. a piece of work because I met him, and 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 Fred said, "Give me a call. Here's my phone number." I'm thinking, "Oh, he's bullshitting me." Yeah. So I, I called him like two weeks later because he says, "I'm busy. Call me around this time." I called. Yeah, I can talk to you. Three hours on the freaking phone, and <laughs> the guy is interesting because he's combative. Yes. He's like the most combative interview I've ever done. Yep. With anyone, and he's so full of shit. This is yep. amazing, and yet he has a lot of interesting stuff to say. And um, uh, I had asked him about the our show tonight, Black Exploitation. Yeah, and uh, I want I want to if I can I want to quote from this. Uh, Go ahead. I said I've always had a problem with the term Black Exploitation or Black Exploit at Black Exploit. Black exploitation, yeah, you know, <laughs> So, what are your thoughts? And he said, "I don't understand how they could use that terminology because I don't know who was being exploited. People yeah. came to them because they enjoyed it. Everybody who worked in them was paid. The checks cleared. If it was providing work, therefore, I never understood what the terminology meant." I've heard that from a lot of people that were in this genre and, you know, in print and in person. I was like, you know, we got paid for the stuff. 
They were good to us. You know, a lot of the times, a lot, especially when you got an all black cast, more or less, these people wouldn't get work elsewhere, at least not in bulk. It was like ah. almost, it wasn't as bad as being a midget, but it was kind of like you were picked out one or two of you for a specialty, like walk on or a cameo or whatever. It wasn't like, here, you've got a meaty role, and here's a whole bunch of other to, to work together. It was kind of rare at the time. So, were they really being exploited? And again, like you said, the audiences ate this up. They loved this. The urban audiences, this is their thing. Uh, they had a voice. They had an expression. They had this kind of uh, cathartic thing, you know, revenge against the man or whatever the hell. They go and you know, fight against the daily whatever crap they're going through in their life. So, yeah, I mean, in a sense, okay, you could say they were being exploited because it's to make money. It's for a market or whatever. It's, it's deliberate, but it's in the same sense that we're being exploited with every single movie and product that's out there now. Okay, we know what you people want. We're going to give it to you. So, yeah, we're being exploited. But is that horrible? You know, are you really upset about being exploited that way? I mean, you know, so that's where it comes down to. Well, after we discuss Superfly, I guess we're going to get into the Westerns and stuff because yes. I got some amazing stuff from him. Well, <laughs> I actually just kind of skimmed ahead because we were talking about Williamson per se. Uh, there's one that I'm going to leave aside because it's a Jim Kelly film. I'll get to him afterwards. But one of them, like you mentioned, the Western, uh, which is on DVD as Boss. I, you know, I'm not politically correct, but there's some things that you really just don't want to say, even in jest. So uh, the original, yeah. yeah, there you go. The original title is like, how do we address this? I don't even know how to say this without being he like, you know. It, though. Oh no, Jack Arnold. Yeah. I'm sorry. Jack Arnold directed it, but he wrote it. Uh, Fred Williamson wrote yes. this one. Uh, there's these two guys, they're basically bounty hunters to come to town. One of them is uh, Dervil Martin, another guy I like a lot, pops up in a lot of bit roles. Uh, and they come in to this one small town. I forget what the deal was, but all of a sudden, they end up getting made sheriff uh, for whatever the reason was. And they start putting up effectively laws against racism. So it's like somebody like said, okay, they would call them that in public. You know, somebody walking by, hey, what are you doing there? You know, and they were gonna find for it. Like, okay, five bucks for you. Like, it was great. I mean, in, in effect, it was a really funny take on the western with a bit of. Uh, almost blazing saddles, but without the borscht belt thing, is the same idea. Like taking the piss out of you know people's stupidity and you know putting you know giving the cockeye basically to racism. Uh, and yet you know it has this confrontational title, which a lot of these films actually do that we'll get to later. Uh, but I always oh, enjoyed. Yeah, it, yeah. So. yeah, I I enjoyed too. You know what? We're, since we're talking about Fred, um, yeah, Pam Greer is the scion. She's like. Signposts for female black exploitation films. Right. Um, black action genre, if you want to be kinder. But I have to say, Fred Waves, the man, you know, love him or hate him, the guy really, he was, he was everywhere and then he crossed over and then he worked for years later, like a decade later, he, you know, he was working in Italy doing the sci fi stuff. So, I mean, uh, I'm looking at a poster right now as we're speaking from <laughs> Boss Nigger. Hey, guys, this is a movie. <laughs> Art Devil. Art You're Lynch. bolder than oh, me. Man. I was like, I'm not going to say this word. I was like, no, this is too much. You know, I, I'm this not like that. Obviously, this is advertised. <laughs> Art Devil, Art Legend, Old oh, Man, Fred Williamson as Boss Nigger. What the <laughs> fuck? That is crazy. That is crazy. And and this stuff was like you're riding the subway. Stops at the train station. Opens up. 
There's the poster. <laughs> That's what's insane. There is the poster. Unbelievable. Yes. So, anyway, he goes off from this. Well, it wasn't even in order. We're just kind of going from my list here where I find them. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I was having <laughs> cat uh, emergencies here. My wife's freaking out. Uh, one of our cats ejected her. Well, no, it, it's not bad. It, it's like the one cat was knocking like a bunch of figures and stuff over. She goes over to help him out, and another cat went and ejected her video game. <laughs> The cat ejected your wife's video game? The cat ejected the video game, yes. So she's like freaking out over there. (laughs) But anyway, Uh just a little bit of behind-the-scenes amusement there. Uh, I want to see the video (laughs) of this. (laughs) Exactly right. I wish I had this on tape. Uh, And I'm looking at it. I'm like, holy shit, she really did eject the game. And she put it back in. She just put it back in the the system for us. (laughs) Smart cat. The cat? Uh, The cat did it, yes. Uh, The whole deal ejected it and put it back in. So anyway, uh, more Fred Williamson films on my list here. Uh, Death Cop, which was uh, it came out on Code Red. It's a cheap, cheap film, but I get a kick out of it. Apparently, he did a couple of films with this character Jesse Crowder. Another one of these. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, he directed yeah, type. Yeah, uh, I think he directed this one too. But you know, I enjoyed it for what it was. It's kind of like a midnight run, but like really, really low budget. You know, cheapo, whatever. Uh, with some fat guy that's like winding the hallway through. It's almost like taking Woody Allen with you, uh, <laughs> going across country while you're getting shot at. Uh, Hell up in Harlem, uh, and of course, its original one was Black Caesar. Black Caesar. They're kind of a toss. A Black Caesar is more serious. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like a Scarface, a Black Spotted Scarface, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, most people love it. I did not really like this film that much. I found it a little too turgid. But I did sort of like the follow-up, which was Hell Up in Harlem, because now all of a sudden he gets laid up right away. I think there were both Larry Cohen films, of all people. Uh, uh, so, and those of you who know Larry Cohen films, is like, why, really? Blaxploitation? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and he actually did another one, too, called Bone with Yafikado, but we'll get to that later. Uh, so uh, Fred's in this... And Julius Harris, who played his father in both films, uh, you'd probably recognize him. He's almost like a Scat McCrothers type. Uh, he's a father, and he winds up taking over his drug ring while Fred's laid up. And, you know, all of a sudden they have to have a face-off themselves. Like, you can't even trust your own father in these films. <laughs> uh, I think he has to kill him at the end, actually, to get his, uh, you know, whatever his drug ring back. Uh, Gloria Henry's in this thing, who was in one of my favorites, which is a Jim Kelly one, Black Bill Jones. Uh, uh, and Dervo Martin once again. Uh, let's see what else we got. One down, two to go. Uh, which has Jim Brown and Richard Roundtree and Jim Kelly in it. Uh, not a good film though. I would figure with all those people, and you got Fred Williams and Jim Brown, Richard Roundtree, Jim Kelly. These are big names in black exploitation. Eh, I didn't think it was that great. Well, uh, you know, you're, you're skipping the big Danny duo of Fred Williams. I actually had billboards. Times Square. Which one was this? And <laughs> they have that word in them again. Ah. <laughs> yes, yes, we're, we're, we're doing on PC, folks. It's not my fault. It's the name of the movie. <laughs> That's what I was like, how do I address this? Trolley. Yes, yes. And that was the original one. Yeah, well, yeah. I think Legend was before Boss, wasn't it? Cause I, I yes, think it was Boss. Legend, then Boss, then. Official. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like I said, I was like, "How do I address this? I really don't want to." <laughs> well, I asked him about this. I asked him about this. He said, "Like, 
I said, well, sir, y'all, these, these movies happen spurred in there. And he said to me, since I went to Paramount Pictures, and I said to them, I never made a black western. Let's do one. So how much is the budget? He says, I can make it for 600000 And they said, what are you going to call it? And I said, The Legend of the Trolley. And he said, they jumped out of the chairs. And he said, listen, that's the advertising campaign. That's what I want. So um, he said, what But they did. They put up a big billboard in Times Square, which I saw and I remember seeing. Right. And it said, The Legend of the Trolley. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, again, coming from him, he's making a statement. I understand that, but it's just like, wow, man, how do you address that nowadays? And you know, when they put these things out on DVD, they, they conveniently drop that or replace the title. Uh, well, actually, yeah, I think it, I think TV broadcast. Uh, I'm seeing something: the Legend of Black Charlie. Ah, that could be. Um, yeah. There's another one that he did that I didn't really care for: Mean Johnny Barrows. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, Elliot Gould's in it. That that's kind of amusing. I liked Elliot during the seventies. Um, James Brown's in the damn thing. Stuart Whitman, Roddy McDowell, but eh, you know, it, it just doesn't work. He's too put upon. He's he's kind of like not even a likable schlub. He's just kind of a schlub, and he keeps having one bad thing after another happen to him and having to fight his way through. And it's just like I don't know. I, I can understand how it's sort of an empowerment thing, but it didn't work for me. Uh, well, well, I, I did, think after a while, Fred was what, what he was doing was he had a little cachet of money, right? And he had some friends that were like maybe not an adult, but they were a little bit on down and outs. And right. he put these movies together and said, you know, I think this guy needs work. Let me let me give him some, give him a part, you know? Right. And but the movies weren't very good. <laughs> so. Exactly. Uh, one I did like though was uh, that man Bolt, which is basically yeah. a black 007. Uh Nobody yes. ever talks about this damn film, but that's basically what he is. He is 007. Yeah. Um, you know, Miko Mayama's uh, in this for a little eye candy. Teresa Graves in it again. Uh, yeah, basically, it's just he's got to transport something. Like, oh yeah, take this briefcase to Mexico City or whatever from Hong Kong or whatever. And of course, people are after him, so on and so forth. But it's fun. Yeah, it's ephemeral. There's no point to it. But it's loads of fun. Um, Black Eye is another one he did. I didn't care for that one as much. Uh, he's oh, again, that's, like, that's a much better one. I thought. I thought did you like was, that one? Uh, yeah, because it was it was a little bit more serious. <sighs> Yes, serious. Yeah, you know, he's There's investigating a like hippie cultists and preachers and shit. Uh, you know who's in this one besides Teresa Graves is uh, Richard Anderson, who's Oscar Goldman, if you remember the uh, Bionic Woman and Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> that was strange well, to I see. I this movie also directed by Jack Arnold, hence you know the, the uh, Incredible Shrinking Man. Right. Uh, I thought this movie was, you know, I wish there were more of them because I think what was try- what they were trying to do was. He's a private detective who happens to be black. Fine. Right. Okay. And he's dealing with, like, a cult thing and the deaths. And, you know, it didn't really work because I think that the director may have not invested himself as much. Yeah. But it could have really been good, and they could have had something to go go on further with this. I think this was remade, in a way, with uh, James Coburn, the Dane Curse. Remember that? I like the Dane Curse a lot, but I Black think that's Eye, I mean, like a remake of this. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong; it wasn't like, oh, I hate this film. It's just like I don't think it worked as well. I mean, I was like, okay, I guess, but it's like you know, third or fourth tier black exploitation for me. 
Uh, and I'm surprised to hear that you think it's uh, being cursed because that's very possible, actually. But I was like, wow, that's quite a difference between those two films. Uh, well, or it is, should I say, but, miniseries? But, and... Yeah. Well, I think I think if they they took this and they rewrite the script. Yeah, no, I could see it. I could see what you're saying. It's just like, wow. Yeah. I would have never connected those two otherwise because they're so different. Uh, in at but least in their presentation. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we'll go back to one that you had mentioned before, which may be the worst black exploitation film ever made, which is Blackenstein. Oh. <laughs> Liz Renee from Desperate Living. All you John Waters fans. Uh, and everybody else is like, nobody, John Hart, R.B. Stone, who are these people? Uh, horrible, horrible, horrible film. Stay away from it by all means. And I know there's a group of people out there like myself that would hear that and go, oh, i got to check this out. You'll regret it. Trust me. <laughs> it is bad. Mm-hmm. It is so turgid and boring. It makes the worst Al Adamson film look like the most exciting, I don't know what, roller coaster <laughs> ride. Uh, it is so bad. Um and the guy that's playing him, I mean, he's just, okay, yeah, he's supposed to be the Frankenstein monster, but he's kind of short and fat, and it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, it just doesn't work. He ends up looking like a cardboard box walking around, more or less. Uh, House on Skull Mountain, I like this one a lot, actually. And the kicker to this, like you had mentioned about Robert Downey Jr. before, is Victor French uh, is in this damn thing, and he's supposed to be half black, uh, <laughs> which was funny in itself. Uh, and Mike Evans, who's Lionel and the Jeffersons and all the families in this thing, uh, and he basically goes up. It's an old dark house kind of a thing. But not only an old dark house kind of thing, and you've got this kind of like you know, half joke here, where it's like, yeah, right, what are you doing here? But no, no I'm half black. Uh, <laughs> it, it's got voodoo and shit in it. It's got like a voodoo cult going on in the basement. It's lots of fun. I mean, it's a stupid film, but if you're looking for like a genuine, okay, here's a horror film that sort of crosses black exploitation. If you don't go for Blackula, go for this one. It's a really, I always enjoy Scotsman Skull Mountain a lot. And I always, nobody ever talks good about it. Everybody either doesn't, it, it completely ignores it, or they talk shit about it. I'm like, I don't know. I, I always liked it. Uh, how about you? What was your take on either of these lovely films? <laughs> um,. <laughs> Which is the last one you were talking about? Uh, the last what? was House of Skull Mountain. Before that was Black oh, and I, I, Yeah, yeah, no, I know Black and Sun. Um, House of Skull Mountain, I, I found interesting. It, it it definitely has some atmosphere going on. Oh, yeah. It's actually, I, I would say it achieves that pretty well. Um it's actually a standout, actually. You know, it's funny that you bring that movie up. If you go back to the genre, it's, it's one that's actually effectively made. It's effectively directed. The acting's not bad. Right. And it actually still has a aura about it. You know, when you watch yeah. it, it's like, oh, it's kind of creepy. That's what now, I'm saying. Black- it's like... You yeah. could take the fact of, you know, you take all the black actors out or ignore that. You know, just like, okay, I don't notice that they're black kind of a thing. And right. it still works. It doesn't have to be black exploitation. It just so happens that, you know, most of the cast is black. And that's kind of the joke that Victor French is supposed right. to be part of the family. Otherwise, it's just a, you know, an old dark house film with voodoo in it. <laughs> and black, Blackenstein, I'm sorry to say, I always uh, wanted to see it. It was like, do you remember the days when you had a want list? Do you remember that? Yes. Uh, you know, I yes. never saw it until it came to DVD. I was wanted to see it for like what twenty years, <laughs> and okay. I saw it. I'm like, oh my god, that was horrible. Yeah, there <laughs> Same thing with Doctor Black, Mister Hyde. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was uh, besides Bill Hardy, probably before preceding Bill Hardy, 
uh, vlog was a guy named Donald C. Willis who uh, wrote three books, and they were pretty much list books. You know, like just tried to find, he scoured everywhere for this info, and he was just like little bits of synopsis. Oh, for me, it was always Phil Hardy. I loved that book, the original. Oh, yeah. Like I said, this, this preceded Phil Hardy. This is back in the 70s, actually. And then Donald C. Willis, I think he, he did three of these. And uh, maybe for McFarlane, I'm not sure, maybe Scarecrow. And, yeah, everybody was trying to make a list from this before the Phil Hardy came along and everybody was making a list. Of, you know, list we're talking about, like, I want to see this. Where can I get this? Yep. And I used to scour the ball and pops for this crap. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So Blackenstein appeared on that, and I'm like, i got to see this movie. And I finally saw it. I was like, oh, this is horrible. Yeah. Um, and I got the DVD for like four bucks, and I regret it. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I, I got it in my collection. It's a black exploitation. I'll hang on to it, but it's like, Ooh, wow, that is awful. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's like you, it's like opening a refrigerator and something rotted inside, and it smells like, you know, rancid farts. Like, oh, it's that bad. Uh, yes, it's not even saved by the buxom nurse played by whoever she may be. You're so right. Uh, Ivory Stone. <laughs> uh, you uh, okay, good. That's her name. Uh, but anyway. Did we skip Superfly? Yes, we did. We didn't get there yet. Still going. Oh, okay. So Slaughter, uh, Slaughter's big ripoff. I like Jim oh, Brown. Slaughter. Yeah. Uh, he did another film that I also liked, Black Gun. Uh, but mm. Slaughter was probably his best one. Um, Stella Stevens is in it again from uh, what's your name? Cleopatra Jones, the Casino Gold. There. <laughs> so that says something. Yeah. Uh, Rip Torn is in it. Cameron Mitchell's in it, which is interesting. And Marlene Clark comes over from uh, Ganja and Hess for this one. Uh, the first one works pretty damn well. The second one doesn't work that well, but what makes it great is, okay, you got Dan Stroud in it, you got Gloria Hendry in it, but Ed fucking McMahon is in it. Ed McMahon is the bad guy. Ha, ha, ha. Hey, Johnny. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, really? I'm supposed to take him seriously? He's like a scary drug dealer? <laughs> he looks like he's going to go back to the bar for a drink. I mean, get out of here. And they're around the golf. Uh, but that in itself makes it hilarious. And, of course, you got Jim Brown going, kicking the doors. And he was very, very serious. He was a football player. And unlike a lot of these people that would kind of act it out or camp it up or do whatever they had to do to get theatrical, he was just a no-nonsense, kick the doors in, pull out his you know double-barreled shotgun, blow your fucking head off. That's the kind of guy he was. Uh, he didn't have a lot of, quote, personality in that respect. And that actually makes these films kind of um, – more violent in a way than a lot of black exploitations. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Slaughter was not, the Asian news has a tagline, so Slaughter is not just his name or something. It was kind of that, not Peckinpah level, but you know, really hard and gritty sort of films, which is why I was just surprised that, okay, in edited versions, they played so often on like TNT and TBS in the afternoons in the 90s and stuff, really. Uh, but, you know, I did enjoy the films, uh, and I certainly enjoyed Brown. Um, anything you want to say on him before I we move on? Well, yeah, I, I was, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. The first one is probably the best, and uh, has a, if you can see the the real version, which I think on an MGM DVD, mm -hmm. the uncut version. Double feature. Uh, this is, yeah, this is surprising, almost graphic love scene with Stella yes. Stevens. In the ground. Yes, there and, is. And uh, like, yeah, Stella. Um, <laughs> um, 
I wasn't even going there. It's just the fact that he was black and she was white, and this is 1972. Yeah. Um, which, which, which is, you know, it's, yeah, it's a great kid. Rip Torn, who was like 240 years old when I saw him a few months ago. Uh, Stella has had so much work done, she doesn't look like herself anymore. Uh, I hate that, yeah. That's pathetic but, I like the Florida movies. They're they're fun. Yeah, the first is the best. Uh, which is you know, sometimes people say the first is the best, and sometimes they say all oh, the second's better. Yeah, but the, it just depends how you look at it. Yeah. And Jack Starrett, he was a a good old boy. He was a southerner, southern yep. director, and he was an actor. And uh, I think Jack Starrett's best freaking movie was the one with Peter Fonda. Uh, and Warren Oates. Oh, uh, oh. you talk about the, uh, the the one we drive across country uh, with Susan yes. George, right? Uh, yes. Not too lame blacktop. It's better than that. It's more fun. Um, oh, it's the one with the satanic cult gets them. Yeah. Well, Race for the Devil, yeah. But they also had Race another one that I liked a lot. Uh, Crazy Mary and Dirty Larry or whatever the hell. But you're thinking Race for the Devil, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Race for the Devil is better. It's Race for the Devil had uh, Lara Parker from Dark Shadows in it. And I think Loretta yeah. Swift. <laughs> uh, As an actor, the guy was all over TV. He did a lot of TV work, and he did a lot of Hell's Angels movies. Yes, it's true. Yep. Yep. Uh, Jack Starr did like Angels from Hell, Run Angel, Run, shit like that. So uh, natural for him to uh, move into this genre. So another of my favorite people that I met after Isaac Hayes was Jim Kelly. I've always been a Jim Kelly fan. I loved him since Enter the Dragon. And then pretty early on, I think it was that movie that came from Hollywood back in 1980 that pointed me towards Black Belt Jones, which I managed to see within the first, you know, maybe by 85 or so. Uh, I always loved this freaking film. It's cheesy as shit. It has a fantastic trail. He's big, he's bad, and he's black. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's Jim Kelly. He's a martial artist. Uh, and he actually does know kung fu. Uh, so he looks convincing doing what he does. And Gloria Henry's in it, like I mentioned before. She pops up in all those other films afterwards. Uh, Scatman Crothers is in it, which is funny, you know, because again, Hong Kong Fooey. Um, there is Marla Gibbs is in the damn thing uh, from 227. Uh, Ted Lang is in it, who was uh, Isaac the bartender on The Love Boat. And he also did a bit in Watt Stacks, which is hilarious because he's talking like revolutionary politics and stuff. It's like, really? Okay. Isaac the bartender? Uh, so here he is, and once again, he's talking revolutionary politics. He's the Black Student Union rep. <laughs> uh, but it's a fun little film. I mean, I love the, the car wash scene. Uh, it's just, it's stupid, but it's loads of fun. And it, that score by uh, Dennis Coffey, who was a, he was actually a white funk player. Uh, yeah. It's just unforgettable once you hear that. I got a tidbit for you. Yeah. Dennis Coffey was 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 a session guy that worked with a group of guys, and uh, there was another guitar player named Lewis Paul. Who, <laughs> no, it's true, true shit. And and actually, uh, all these guys they did they did records because they were do they were like the house band for these black exploitation groups. They were like yep, all these punk guys, and they all wound up doing in the early seventies their own LPs. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the Lewis Paul one, I have the Dennis Coffey LP somewhere in the house. Yeah, the I Lewis Paul one, I saw it 
for sixty nine cents in the store back in the eighties. So I gotta wow. take it. So I put it on my, my cage one day and you know somebody thought I was him. Years <laughs> <laughs> it was another musician. Wow. It it was Bobby Whitlock from Derrick and Dominoes. Oh, okay. And he thought I was him and I said, No ma'am, sorry, I just bought this fracking but yeah, both have the same babe. But he proceeded to tell me offline that he worked with him and what the whole story was, that all these guys were like, they would do these soundtracks and they would, they would back up all these musicians. And most of the time they would be nameless. Yeah. And then when they sort upon themselves, they oh, I want to make a record, they would, but nobody would buy because nobody ever heard of them. Nobody knew who they were, exactly right. Yeah. But, so anyway, it's another yeah. one of our famous transgressions. Um, Black Belt Jones, I agree with you. And I have to say, uh, it's directed by Robert Klaus, who did Enter the Dragon. Yep. Uh, which is two years before this movie, and Enter the Dragon everybody knows about. And if you don't, what are you doing here? So. <laughs> and then uh, Kelly does a few more films. Uh, there's a line of connection here because, okay, he was with Klaus in you know, the Bruce Lee film that you just mentioned. And then he, Klaus isn't on this one, but he does a film called Three the Hard Way with Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, like I mentioned before. Uh, Alex Rocco's in the thing. Corbin Burnson, if anybody remembers the 80s uh, nighttime dramas is in this. And Irene Sue is in it, who is a you know, pretty Chinese girl. And that's the link to the next film he does, which is again with Robert Klaus, uh, because she, you know Irene Sue and Yuen Biao's in this one, who later came to fame with uh, you know doing films with Cynthia Rothrock and people like that in the uh, the eighties and nineties, um, like Writing Wrongs, things like that. Um, Hot Potato is the name of the film. That's actually after Black Belt Jones. That's another one that I really like. Stupid film, but loads of fun. I mean, if you want a popcorn movie, that's the one to pull out. Um, my wife loves oh, that film. Oh, Golden Needles too. Golden Needles too. Gold, Golden Needles is great with uh, Joe Don Baker. <laughs> yeah. Did Klaus do that one too? I thought he directed that one too. Yes, he did. Yeah. That's another WTF cast because you got Elizabeth Ashley who was really popular on stage and TV. Right. And Southern Match. Burgess Meredith? <laughs> yes. Uh, and this this was supposed to be, rumor has it, uh, star George Lazenby. I don't know how true this is. but I don't know about that. Especially going to Joe Don Baker after that. That was out of left field. That's actually one of the reasons I loved it, because like, I get a kick out of Joe Don Baker, you know, some overweight southern guy. Uh, and there he is doing stuff like Mitchell and, you know, called Needles. Uh, so it's, again, totally way out of left field and hilarious. Um, but, then, but then Jim worked for your favorite, Al. Al <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, and he did, what the hell was that film? Death Dimension, and there's another one that was better. Uh, let's see if I can find it in my list here. Do you remember what the other film was that he did? It was something like, was it Black Samurai? Was that it? It might have been Black Samurai. Yes. Yeah, I like that film a lot. Another really shitty one. It's, it's hilarious. It's one of those W2F films because there's a scene where he's got to go through this forest to get to this um, basically a compound the baddies got. And, and there's some, he's one of his old girlfriends there. He's got to stop and bang her. I mean, it's ridiculous. But one of the people that he's got to fight, and essentially, uh, he doesn't really kick his ass, but he pulls a trick on him and catches him, is a midget. So they're fighting a freaking midget. I'm like, wow, I don't believe this. So, you know, again, this is the kind of shit I love. So I really got a kick out of that film. Uh, 
So is there anything you want to say about that lovely Hal Adams and Masterwork? <laughs> no, nothing you can say about no, Hal Adams. So there's a couple of films that you may not have even seen because I think they're like something weird and stuff like that put these out. Uh, actually, this one wasn't. But there's a film called The Bad Bunch, which is, uh, you know, the word you like to use before, lover. <laughs> was the real name of it. Uh, it's another Graydon Clark. Uh, and he's actually the star of it. And basically he goes, uh, I think they just came back from Vietnam or something. And he's just like, you know, cool with all his like buddies wherever there. But it turns out that they live in Watts. And, you know, he has to go and like, maybe he had to deliver the news that the, the son was dead, you know, from his, uh, whatever they call it, from Vietnam. And he runs into a lot of reverse racism because, you know, they don't want Whitey in the neighborhood and he gets a lot of shit. And plus there's like a racist cop that doesn't want him there and doesn't like all the darkies. You know how that shit is. I've always wanted to see that one. Yeah, I've always wanted to see that one because it's actually been in – it was in um, his recent autobiography. And uh, I was really curious. He wrote at length about that movie and how he had to change it three times. It's an interesting film to see. It's just a little heavy-handed. I mean, true to life, yes, but it's dark. It's like, well, nobody really wins in this one. You know, he's trying to be a good guy. He's getting shit from the racist cop on the one hand. He's getting shit from the racist blacks on the other hand. It's like, who's really right? Who's wrong? It's kind of like, ah. It's difficult. It's real life, but it's like, ah, it's not the kind of thing I want to sit down and relax to. Um Lady Coco, uh, that's really cheap. That's a Matt Simber. Yeah, those of you who know Matt Simber films, let's just say something right there. With Lola Falana in it, for Christ's sakes. Uh, and Gene Washington, the uh, the football guy, is in this one. Uh, he also did another one, Matt Simber, called The Black Six, which was Gene Washington once again. Mean Joe Green's in it. I, I, uh, I saw this in the theater, young man. Did you really? <laughs> I did. Wow. And let me tell you my story. People are going to love this one. I hope you guys are listening to this. Listen carefully. I saw this in the theater at the Lowe's Metropolitan in Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. And so this is the bunch of, uh, I guess, football players are, play- are in this movie. Yeah, yeah, you just mentioned it. <laughs> Sorry. They're like, uh, yeah, Mean John Green, Gene Washington, and people I have no idea who the fuck they were. Anyway, the Black Six are coming against the racist white guys. And so, I'm in a black neighborhood. Yep. And so, I'm sinking down in my seat. It's like, kill that white motherfucker. Kill that white motherfucker. Kill him. Kill him. I'm like, oh, shit. You know? And I forgot what this was on a double bill, because this was the days where double bills were common. It wasn't like a double bill. It was always two movies. Yeah, and that was a very scary and very um, evocative moment of my own life. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard stories so, like that. Anybody that reads, uh, you know, histories of grindhouse areas, whether you're uh, talking stuff like Sleazoid Express or even going back to like the Medveds in the Golden Turkey Awards, where they get a great story oh, about God. going and seeing the overnight shift and seeing the screen blackula scream. You know, with a grindhouse audience. I've been to some myself, and thankfully, uh, even into the 90s and 2000s, there were some sleazy theaters I had mentioned previously that we went to. Uh, and just the, the audience is more either entertaining or scary than anything that goes on on the screen. So, <laughs> unfortunately, well, most yeah, of us lost us nowadays. I, I, I've, been, I've been to Times Square, and I never experienced that. So, or, you know, in the early 70s, seeing the Black Six, I don't know what happened, but 
Bushevi <laughs> was prime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of being prime, you get the Black Gestapo from Lee Frost. Uh, didn't Lee Frost do like the not the Ilsa films, but something like that? He's, he's doing like some of those Nazi camp films back when. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've seen yeah. Yeah. And of course, this one's pretty nasty too. And you know who pops up in it for a second is Ushi Degar. Like, what the hell is she doing in the? <laughs> but so, oh yeah, really... uh, Love Camp Seven. That was one of Lee Frost's pictures. Yeah. Yep. Uh, out in left field. I mean, Velvet Smooth. There's a lot of cheap ones like this. Uh, here's one I like: Black Connection, which uh, something weird put this one out. Nobody else really put this one out, and it's known as Run. Your favorite word, Run, and that's it's actually not my the soundtrack. Word, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the soundtrack by the Checkmates, uh, who I saw on Playboy After Dark, believe it or not, an earlier incarnation where half the band was white. Uh, and then, of course, the singer's black. So I don't know what version they were by the time they did this, but the song was run, run, run. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought something up, too. I'm I'm glad you brought something up, too, because, like, while they're great singers, Isaac Hayes, mm-hmm. and Curtis Mayfield, and yep. so-and-so, and so-and-so, were African-Americans, blacks. A lot of the band guys were white. Mm-hmm. Well, the bands, the bands were... Um, um, they were mixed. I mean, yeah. but but well, I think that's where it was Sly Stone. Yeah, like like the one of the greatest funk bass players ever is this woman. I forgot her name. There's like all these documentaries about her, and she's on yeah. like YouTube and shit. And even going like, with Frank Zappa. I mean, he was in integrated bands. You know, like Willis. You know, yeah. these people. You know, uh, George Duke. But, um, but back in the day, though, when you hear like like oh, there's some brothers playing that. But no, like my guys, man. Yep. Yeah, yep. so it was true. really interesting. Really interesting. It's true, especially Sorry. when you watch a lot of old stuff like I do. You'll, you'll see, like, a white bass player. And I'm like, what the fuck? Really? And that's a funky line he's throwing down. Like, okay. Uh, so it was not, I mean, it was a statement, but it wasn't as bad and, in, in, you know, uh, segregated, if you will, as yes. you might think. As we thought it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's other ones, actually, some more something weird was the Black Bunch, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, the Black yeah. Alley Cats, which is a Sandy Dempsey film with John Paul Jones in it and Marsha Jordan. And so, if, essentially, this is a sexploitation film filled with these people that wound up, if not by then, and later on doing porn. Uh, but they're in this ridiculous film about this girl gang. Uh, JD's Revenge is uh, an interesting one. It's kind of a ghost story, really. The guy gets possessed by this you know, vengeful spirit of some gangster from the 20s. Um, Louis Gossett Jr. is in that one. Uh, interesting film. Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah, long but, career, that guy. Yeah. Uh, Willie Dynamite, which had, uh, of all people, Roscoe Orman. Remember Gordon from Sesame Street? <laughs> Before he got busted for drugs? Uh, he was playing Willie Dynamite, this pimp. Uh <laughs> And that was, that, was a very popular that, movie. that was a very popular movie, and 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 another one also very popular was the Mac. Remember the Mac? Yep. The Mac, yep, with Max Julian. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. Uh, same yeah. idea. The, my favorite part of that is when he has the dream and he goes to the pimp, uh, the pimp ball, or whatever the hell it was, the players' ball. That's it. And they're all there, like, yeah, right, you're number one now. You're the best pimp in town. <laughs> and I think Rich, at the end, Richard Pryor had a part in that. To Didn't they stick him yeah. in the trunk of the back? They threw him in the back of the trunk of a car and like <laughs> ran off a cliff or something. <laughs> a really ridiculous movie. Uh, again, that's one of the depressing ones. Yeah, yeah. And probably had a really small part in it because he was oh, like yeah. fucked up dead guy. But when he became famous, when Pryor became 
famous because like everyone's like, who the hell's Max Julian? Who, by that time, lost all his hair because he had like this big fro. Yep. And by the time Pryor became famous, they re-released it. Max Julian and Richard Pryor, you know, they beefed up his part. <laughs> yeah, of course. They always do that shit. Uh, so then there was The Hitman, which really wasn't that good, but it's a rare starring role for Bernie Casey. Usually he's kind of like the second man or whatever the hell, or, or even a bit player. Here he's like the lead with Pam Greer. Um, Brotherhood of Death, which is another one kind of like uh, the Black Six you mentioned earlier. Again, a bunch of football players, members of the Washington Redskins, Roy Jefferson, people like that. Uh, they come back from Vietnam, they go back to their hometown, and they found out it's overrun by a bunch of racist rednecks. Uh, Stigma, which had, it's a strange one, that's really about VD. And it's got Philip Michael Thomas, of all people, who is uh, you know, from Miami Vice. Um, you know, those Pam Greer movies you mentioned earlier, all those ones she did for uh, AIP, the, the women in prison type ones, like Women in Cages, Big Dollhouse, The Arena, The Big Birdcage. I don't really think those are black exploitation, but, you know, Pam Greer's in it, so. Uh, I mentioned Cool Breeze before. That. Yeah, Cool Breeze before, which is you know not really that great. It's a heist movie, but Thomas Rasool is in it. Raymond St. Jacques in it. Pam Grier's in it again. Uh, Alan Adamson did a couple of these, besides the one we mentioned earlier, uh, The Two with Jim Kelly. He actually yeah. did something called Mean Mother, which was – he, he liked taking films and chopping them together. He was like the Godfrey Ho of his age. Uh, and he got a Spanish film called Run for Your Life. And they oh, said, oh, you know yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. AIP Sherman says, eh. You know, nobody's gonna watch this friggin' film. Do something different with it. So they added some new footage and made it into like sort of a black exploitation film called Need Mother with Doby Gray, who was a singer. Uh, and they put in, you know, because here's an original film, I guess. Uh, Luciano Paluzzi's in it, and then you got Marilyn Joy. Uh, so it's like, what the hell is going on in this film? But it's funny, and I got a poster for it too, which is even funnier. Uh, Black Heat, same idea, but not quite as uh, disjointed. Uh, Timothy Brown's in it. Uh, Russ Tamlin's in it. Uh, Dynamite Brothers was another one. I liked that one a lot. Timothy Brown's in it one more time with uh, a fellow named Alan Tang. Uh, Carol Speed's in it, who was in Abbey. Uh, Aldo Ray's oh. in it. James you know, Hall. we're talking about stuff, and, and, you know, a poster I remember seeing a lot, a lot, a lot back in the day it was the spook who sat by the door. I love that film. I'm, I'm going to get to that soon. Those are the films that I really like from Black Exploitation. Uh, the really cheap ones that are actually made by and for the black community. They're actually more interesting to me just because, I don't know, there's something more authentic about them. There's just the cheapness of it, the shoddiness of it. So it, it appeals to all that kind of cult film instinct, but also yeah. it just feels less like, okay, here's, here's a bunch of white guys in this thing. We, we know what you guys want. Let's go and like preach to the choir. Whereas this is more like somebody's got a weird statement that they want to make. It doesn't necessarily make any fucking sense. Like you want to get some like a bar black Superman or you know Sunrise spaces the place, and yet that's the very thing that makes it work. At least for me. You know, some people are like, oh my god, this is a piece of shit. And you know, and, and ostensibly you're right. But uh, so anyway, uh, one of them that's just really terrible and funny is uh, Super Spook. I don't know if you've seen that thing. Uh, basically, it's supposed to be a comedy about this private eye. It's awful. Uh, but because it's so bad, it's funny. Um, Jive Turkey is another one. Uh, let's see. I mentioned Abby before with Carol Speed and William Marshall. William Marshall's like the exorcist that comes in to, to help him out. Austin Stoker's in it again. Um, and the one you had mentioned earlier, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. This thing has one of the greatest movie trailers ever. And yet, it's the worst piece of shit. It's so boring. Uh 
I always liked Bernie Casey. You know, I wanted to see him in his rare leading roles like Hitman and stuff. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, you know, he's got this great trailer. Let's check this out. Uh, Rosalind Cash was in it from the Omega Men. You know, I liked her. I'm like, all right, let me check this out. What a stinker. Uh, it, it's not as turgid as Blackenstein, but it was the same kind of reaction. Like, okay, I've waited 20-some-odd years to see this film. I really want to check this out. They finally put it out. Ooh, that kind of sucks. <laughs> uh, you have anything you want to say about any of those films? No. <laughs> no, I, I think you did really well. No, really. I, uh, I don't think I could really add anything to that. Another one I really like is The Glove, uh, which has uh, John Saxon's actually the star. Rosie but Greer. Rosie Greer. Yeah. Yep, Rosie Greer. Uh, some people you might know from the 70s, like Joanna Cassidy, Aldo Ray, Keenan Wynn, um, and of all people, Joan Blondell from the, if you know, your early 30s films. Uh, I always liked her stuff. As a matter of fact, she used to show up a lot with, uh, who played the, Glenda, Glenda Farrell, who played uh, Torchy, uh, Torchy Blaine, was it? I forget. She had a series of yeah, films. Yeah, I think it's Torchy Blaine, yeah. 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 Really uh, likable. And she would be paired a lot of times with Joan Blondell. And Blondell was some films of her own, too. She was kind of like a bit player, uh, especially in the pre-code era. Uh, but the glove basically, Rosie Greer gets out of jail, and he has this. It's ridiculous. It's like a metal glove that somehow you know makes him able to punch through walls and shit. And he goes around. I think he's just you know trying to go and see his family or he'll get the hell away from you know not get arrested again. But it turns into this thing where it's like, oh god, we gotta stop the guy with the iron glove. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's got a hilarious theme. So, <coughs> excuse me, something caught my throat here. Um, but you know, I always enjoyed that one. Black Shampoo took a while to grow on me, but it's still a funny film. Uh, that's actually a Graydon Clark uh, with John Daniels. It's kind of mean-spirited in a lot of ways. But any film where you've got the guy, basically he's running a hairstylist salon. So he's there defending, you know, he's got like, obviously he's got a gay guy working there and he's got these women. And he ends up at the end of it coming out and fighting the bad guys with a chainsaw. Like, really? Uh, but it doesn't quite go to where you think it's going to go. But it's, you know, for a Graydon Clark film, it's not that bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, we get to the ones that, again, like I said, these are the ones I really get a kick out of because they're really urban. Um, a Bar Black Superman. This film mm. is ridiculous. <clears throat> uh, the guy basically... They've got a bunch of racist neighbors. They move into a neighborhood, uh, this family, and they're getting all this shit. So one of them uh, is like a bodyguard, basically. And the guy's like a scientist, so he ends up taking this uh, formula and, you know, getting like almost like Luke Cage, you know, steel hard skin or whatever the hell. But it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. It never really gets out of this whole kind of, you know, fighting with people on the block sort of a thing. Uh, and that's something you'll see in common with a lot of these kind of films, like the Dolomite films. Uh, Rudy Ray Moore was a party record comedian. Uh, those of you who don't know, these you have these records out of people like Rusty Warren and stuff like that. Or really, even really, Bill Cosby. Yeah, I remember Rusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really raunchy, really raunchy. Raunchy freaking records that you would put on with, you know, especially in the, in the 50s and 60s and stuff when you had a bunch of friends over, you had some drinks going on. Okay, let's, let's go and have some stuff to give us some laughs, you know, a little sex humor, whatever. And there you go, you play these stupid records. And that's all they were. They were I, comedy routines, but they're filthy. Yeah, you know what I always found amazing about I, I when I was younger, I I was in people's houses who had Rudy Ray Moore records, 
And I was floored at the album covers. How the covers, the covers are how, great. They're so racy. They're so racy, and they're like, you mean these things were actually in the freaking uh, record stores? Wow. Yeah. I was no, surprised was like, to find some of this stuff when I was going around record hunting back when. And yeah. uh, one of my favorites is somebody who just posted it recently. I think I already shared it around Christmas time. Uh, his Christmas album, This Ain't No White Christmas. And he's got like all his girls laying around there around the Christmas tree. And they're all naked. He's yeah. naked. You know, whatever. Uh, it's, you know, Rudy Ray Moore was a really kind of low rent, uh, sleazy urban comedian that did this kind of party record stuff. Uh, and he'd do a lot of rhyming and whatever, you know, the signifying monkey. And, and I have friends that really think he's hilarious to this day. Like, you know, friends that grew up on this because, you know, their uncle or hell would play these records back when. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about like my age and stuff and younger. So it's like I don't even know how they would know this guy except that the family was playing the shit and loved it. Uh, and he started making a couple of movies basically on his own. So, again, you've got zero budget. Uh, and he does – Again, I think it sort of goes downhill to some extent because Dolomite is the funniest one and the most ridiculous. Uh, it's so low rent and so urban. It's actually – you see him walking around, and you know this is ghetto. I mean we don't mean like, oh, let's go and find a dingy-looking wall and put some graffiti tags on it so we can make it the Warriors or something. No, no. This is real-life ghetto. You're like, oh, wow, I wouldn't want to be in that neighborhood. Uh, you know, poor black churches and whatever, it, it, all kind of dingy and dirty. He's hanging around parking lots doing his rhymes. Uh, basically the equivalent of doing the dozens with everybody he meets, uh, those of you who knows what that, what that meant. Um, and he's supposed to be, I think, supposed to be like a private eye or some shit, but it, it, he's not really. He's just kind of wandering around doing rhymes to everybody, you know, talking about how big his whatever is and how great his prowess is with the ladies, uh, trying to score the women. And there's really no plot in effect. I mean, there is a plot, but it's just kind of like, eh, whatever. Uh, there's this woman, Queen Bee, that he always goes to, this big fat woman. Uh, you know, he goes to the preacher. One of them after the other are kind of the same. The trick is that Dolomite worked. It's like, wow, this is a really strange oddity. When you get to Human Tornado, I don't know that that works very well. I mean, it's got more of a silly plot. And he gets chased out of town, and he goes on the road. And I, I don't know. The one I did like, though, was P.D. Straw because it's absurd. Uh, it's one of these urban legend stories that they always had about this thing. And, and he tells the story himself, but it's been around longer than him about this guy who, uh, you know, bets something with the devil and, oh, you got to marry my ugly daughter and whatever. So he builds this whole movie around it. Hold on a second. What are you looking for? Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, my wife was asking for something here. Um, he builds this whole ridiculous movie around it, and his two pals, these low-rent comedians named Leroy and Skillet, ridiculous, cheap, mm. crappy, you know, it must have been made for about 50 bucks kind of movie. And yet, I love it. And then you got one that I eat love even more. It's actually probably one of my favorites. Sun Ra spaces the place. Sun Ra was a jazz musician. He did like free jazz. Uh, but he also had a, a big band. So picture that. Not, if you know like Ornette Coleman and stuff like that or Sonny Sherrick, all of a sudden put right. that in a big band setting and you've got Sun Ra. You know, and he had this weird shtick, like kind of like uh, George Clinton and the Mothership Connection there, where it's like, okay, we're going back to space. I'm from Venus and Saturn and all this crap and whatever. Uh, he actually had this one song, Rocket Number Nine from the Planet Venus, Venus. Uh, so he does this movie, and of course the movie is just as crazy. And he comes from outer space, and he does this challenge with a pimp to go and get control. 
the, the souls of the kids in the neighborhood and you know you free them from like drugs and pimping and shit and it's they actually have these sequences towards the end it's like the fat albert cast come to life because there is like some big fat guy and some like nerdy skinny guy and whatever all kids running around and they're on a high school auditorium. It's like the day the school wasn't in session or whatever hell. They filmed in there on the auditorium. I'm like, wow, this is so cheap. And it's got UFOs. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. You have to either sit there and go, oh, my God, what did I just see? Or love it to shit. And I, I definitely love it. Um, the bus is coming, which is this thing that my drummer actually found. He used to talk about it all the time. Uh, basically, this guy again. It's one of those things where the guy comes back from Vietnam, racist cops. Uh, he joins this black nationalist group, and at the end of the thing, the whole metaphor is like, okay, you know, the bus to get out of the ghetto. Here it comes, and the the kid runs and tells this blind guy and whatever else, and that's supposed to be like hope for the future. It's really very urban and very true to. You can tell it was not made by some white guy who appealed to a big audience. It was made by some guy who had a mission and said, I want to say something. I got, you know, where it's 2000 bucks and a couple friends together. Let me go and make a film that will go and get my word out there. Uh, I love that kind of crap. And one of the ones like that is the one you had mentioned, which is the spook who sat by the door, which is yeah. actually the FBI, I believe, was scared of this freaking movie. And yes. uh, not only did the guys who made the film and wrote the film have trouble with them, but it was very difficult to get or see this film for many years. And it's uh, they never really put out a soundtrack, but there was like a bootleg soundtrack out there. Very difficult until fairly recently. I put it out once, and then that went off the market, and then you put it out again on a better label, and then that went off the market, and now good luck. It's a really strong political film, uh, and it's kind of – if you want to say there is a film in black exploitation that is kind of like, you know, let's start a riot kind of a thing, this is it. This is the most political film I've seen in black exploitation. But, you know, if you watch it, you're either going to be with it or you're going to be against it. And I was kind of with it. You know, I, I was cool with it. Um, you had mentioned uh, it earlier. So is there anything you want to say here about it? Well, yeah, yeah, a couple of things, uh, but I'll try to be brief. Uh, Ivan Dixon was a director, producer, and he, he worked on the screenplay. Ivan Dixon was on Hogan's Heroes. He was like the token black guy in Hogan's, Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. But he was also a, a theatrical actor and director before he did Hogan's Heroes, which was the World War II comedy thing with Bob Crane, the sadist sex maniac. Um <laughs> <laughs> which was born out to what actually he was. Um, but The Spook Who Sat by the Door was one of the few pictures that Ivan Dixon worked on in the, the genre that we're discussing tonight. And then this one had to do with uh, a CIA, a black CIA agent who was like thought of as, as far as the agency was concerned as their, their token black agent. And he used, uh, you know, he became disillusioned and he used this stuff to like join the boys you know, and uh, yep. defeat the man. And it was really interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. It's, uh, I have to, yeah, totally. And and you know what? Back in the day, this movie, uh, who was the distributor? Gosh. United Artists of all people. <laughs> Surprised at that. I, 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 I forgot until I just looked at it. They plastered posters and subliminal messages for this thing all over subways and buses back yeah. in the day. So we're talking like 72, 73. And 
was like the spook who sat by the door is coming. And you're like, what are they trying to say? What is this movie about? And they did a really, you know, this is about the time, I think sometimes people knew what they were doing and what kind of product they had. So they were they were trying to really just put it out there. Hopefully the urban markets will pick it up. And this has a Herbie Hancock. I was just going to say, you know, who did the soundtrack that's bizarre. It's Herbie Hancock. That is not a guy yeah. that did a lot of soundtracks in those days. I mean, later on, yeah, he did Death Wish 2 or whatever the hell it was. But it, uh, this wasn't like that. This was a funky soundtrack. I'm like, okay. Yeah, it was good. This is a good one. Yeah. Um, there were a couple other films just like, you know, this kind of cheap black urban sort of thing that I really love. Uh, the two that, uh, Warhawk Tanzania did, uh, Force 4 and The Devil's Express, which is also known as Gang Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. Gang Wars is crazy because basically there's this whole thing. It, basically, they're martial artists are supposed to be. You know, they're, they're not really believable with their martial arts, to put it that way. Him and this little Mexican pimp, whatever the hell he's supposed to be. And there's drug dealing going on, and for some reason they go over to China, I guess it's to train or something, and the little guy goes and steals this you know, idol, just because, I don't know what, because he's a pimp, and uh, he tries to sell it in a street world, but it turns out that it, it turns into this monster, which is like a zombie, and it's going around the sewers and the subways and killing people, and then you've got you know, actual gang wars going on, where, like the Chinese gangs are starting shit, and it's a crazy freaking movie. It's actually one of the most demented movies you're likely to see, especially in black exploitation, but just in general. Uh, and, and it's cheap, falls, though. It's really cheap. It's, it's really cheap so cheap. Must be made for a hundred bucks. Uh, and <laughs> Force Four, which is the follow-up, I guess. Uh, which again has really bad kung fu. There's this endless montage where they all wander around the ghetto asking the same question over and over again, it, over and like five or ten minutes. I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. What, what she's like? Oh yeah, I saw her. She's pretty. Oh, I want that one. Oh, you see what street she's on? You know what street she's on? Okay, over and over and over again. And then. Uh, they have a big fight where they drive down the Palisade Parkway to some rich white guy's garden party, and they cause all this mayhem. Something like, I don't know who the hell knows. It's gold, drugs, I don't know. It's hilarious. Um, and the same guy's in it, that Wilfredo O'Don's with him, and of course, uh, Warwick Tanzania, like I mentioned. Uh, and there's a fellow named Owen Watson. His name was Owen Watson, but he put like a a uh, apostrophe between his name to make it look like he was Chinese. Uh, <laughs> so you get the idea of this kind of thing. Really, it must have been made for – if the other one was made for Heart Bucks, it was made for 50. Uh, the guy from Harlem, another one is loads of fun. Rene Martinez Jr. did this one. So it's either like a Mexican one or a Filipino. I'm not sure which. Uh, really cheap shit. The guy is like uh, – he's supposed to protect this like uh, head of state or something that was in town. Uh, it is so – cheap and shitty, you can't even follow the plot. I mean, there's like this fight out basically on the street in the dirt. Uh, and they're parked on the side of this highway in Florida. Where it's like a Miami Lens production. And they're fighting out there on the grass right by the road. And it's just like, I'm waiting for the alligators or the snakes to come out and bite them. It, it's super cheap and shitty. And yet, that's part of what makes it fun. Um, you know, Ron I think Van it Lee- might be a Filipino movie, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I get the impression. Uh, especially with the director there. Um, Ron Van Cleef did a couple moves. He was another guy that was like sort of half-assed martial artist. Black Dragon, Black Dragon's Revenge. Uh, I remember one of them was funny because he's pissed off that his girlfriend wants to buy this expensive uh, jade statue. Like, oh man, we don't have the money for that. And it turns out that of course you know everybody's chasing him because something's in it, you know, drugs or some shit. It's almost like Golden Needles in that respect. Uh, and they have this one guy who originally doesn't speak, but he turns out to be like uh, a martial artist. You know, it's like a sidekick that follows him around. Uh, it's just ridiculous and fun. 
Black Rodeo. You know, it's one of those things like uh, Watt Stacks. This one has Muhammad Ali in it and, and Woody Strode. He's sitting there talking about all this crap. Apparently, he did a rodeo in uh, in Harlem at one point back in the sixties or whatever the hell. Uh, Death Force. Uh, that's a serial Santiago film. Uh, so again, you talk about whatever. Leon Isaac and Jane Kennedy are in it. Uh, Vic Diaz. You know, you get the idea from that. Um, just a bunch of these things out there. Georgia, Georgia, which was actually written by Maya Angelou of all people. Uh, it's this interracial romance thing with Dirk Benedict and uh, this girl Diana Sands, and basically the the family doesn't want you know this white guy coming around and being involved with her. So again, you get there. It's almost like the one I mentioned before with uh, uh, Graydon Clark, where he's going into the neighborhood and he's cool with it, but they're not cool with him. Um, Super Soul Brothers one, which was also known as the six thousand dollar round. Another Renee Martinez Jr. one, filling in Wild Man Steve, another one of these ghetto comedians, uh, yes. and he's a bum. He's a bum, and he's like, oh yeah, sure. You know, he's all like running around with a bottle. They promise him some liquor, or whatever, and they try out some experimental thing. I'm like, yeah, it may kill you, or it may make you Superman. So of course, it makes him Superman, and they use him to try and go and break into safes and do pull robberies for him and stuff. Uh, but of course, you know, he's an idiot, so it's just ridiculous. Um, what else was there? I mean, Sugar Hill. I used to always love that one. Uh, also known as the Zombies of Sugar Hill. Uh, that's basically. How would you want to describe that one, even? Uh, Marky Bay, Zara Cully, you might recognize from, like, Jefferson's in there. Robert Quarry, who was in the Count Yorga films. Don Pedro Cully. Uh, you know, the, the guy that used to do the seven hour courses. Oh, crisp and clean, no caffeine. Ha, 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 You know, it's it's a decent... It's another one that's... Okay, it's a little bit too urban. It's not quite like the uh, House on Skull Mountain. But it works as a horror film, as a zombie film, without necessarily having to be a black exploitation film. And yet, the black exploitation's in there. You know, they're dealing with the guys that killed her girlfriend and uh, her boyfriend, and she's got to get revenge. And, uh, you know, the drug dealers and their pimps and whatever the hell else. And there's cops and we're hitting on her and trying to figure out why the zombies are killing people. So, you know, these kind of films. I just I don't know. I, the, the cheaper they are with these kind of films, the more I tend to like them. In some cases, that's true across the board, but it's certainly true with black exploitation because it really feels like even crap like you know the Fox Affair or something like that or Delivers from Evil, uh, which had Al Roker's cousin was in that one. Uh, you know they're trying to make some kind of message about saving the community or whatever the hell. Cheap shit. It's almost like on the level of a high school production, but. To me, that's what makes it work because it feels authentic. It's like you and me said, you know what? I really want to say something. Let's go out there and make a movie with our you know, 20 friends or whatever the hell. And they do it, and somehow because of the time and the era, they got it screened somewhere in a grindhouse, in a drive-in, you know, in some like truck stop somewhere. Who the hell knows? And you know, 30, 40 years later, somebody goes and says, hey, I got an idea. Let me restore this and put it on a DVD, and here it is in your collection. That kind of thing is priceless to me. It's like an archaeological dig. Whereas something like, say, Shaft, fun film, but it's almost mainstream. And it's like, it doesn't work on the same level at all. Uh, I mean, yes, there are more black exploitation films out there. I have more. Uh, I've certainly seen more. But, you know, that kind of sums up you know, the better part of my collection, at least stuff that I wanted to address here. Is there any that you wanted to get out of the way of? You had mentioned Superfly. Yeah, yeah. Um... Superfly was one I just wanted to briefly mention because I actually saw it in the theater about the time it came out. Um, uh, directed by Gordon Parks, who, we, who I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> I starred Ron O'Neill when he had here. 
because Ron O'Neill actually, uh, after Superfly, kind of disappeared uh, in the sequel, Superfly TNT. Disappeared that one I actually like better. <laughs> he showed up in uh, a couple of movies and then showed up on TV and something. Uh, Superfly glorifies a drug dealing, uh, yep. suave, what do you call it? Coke dealer, girl, <laughs> cachet of girls, and he's got the mob in his pocket. So he's against the man yep. who's the white mafia, and he's against the man who happens to be the white cops. Yep. And so he's got a funky, funky, fantastic, deliriously good soundtrack by Curtis Mayfield. Freddy's Dead. Oh, yes. Okay. That is I mean, actually one of the best black exploitation soundtracks out there. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It's like that, that bass is rumbling. The supporting cast is like a bunch of who? I mean, you might recognize Sheila Frazier from a couple of these movies. Julius Harris, you've seen him a couple of things. Big bald guy, used uh, glasses. Yeah, we mentioned him in the Hell Comes from Harlem, wherever the hell. He's the, he's yes, the Black Sea yeah. sequel. Uh, Curtis Mayfield pops up briefly. The band, the Curtis Mayfield Experience, who I never heard of. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> probably banding put together for the soundtrack. They they pop up briefly to do... Uh, Don Cornelius is in it to introduce them. <laughs> uh, yeah. And Sig Shore, who was one of the producers of this thing, um, shows up in the movie. Now, Sig Shore uh, is, a, is a character unto himself. Um Sig Shore did a couple of movies. Uh, he did a couple of black exploitation pictures, but he hit, he really hit it big when he uh, he tried to revive Superfly back in the '90s with the Return of Superfly, which uh, was some bullshit kind of thing. And uh, yeah, that was crap. I remember Nathan Purdy was there. What the hell is that? But um, <laughs> also Sig Shore, that's the way of the world, which was a really yep. weird. Um. I wouldn't call it black exploitation. It was sort. No. I guess for somebody though, it was probably the uh, the singers. It was like you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, popular R&B funk singers and Harvey Keitel. You know, Harvey Keitel was like a producer. It was a very strange movie, but Sig Shore worked on that. He did a couple of music-oriented things, but anyway. Superfly, yeah, glorified drugs, prostitutes, and it, had, it was a very influential film for my youth. Um, I thought the sequel was slicker and yeah. probably not as good. I liked it better, but for different reasons, because it was like, it wasn't quite so urban. It was more ridiculous. I mean, he's there like, wasn't he like actually supplying TNT and weaponry to this uh, revolution or whatever the hell? And it was in Europe, too. Yeah. He wasn't even in the U.S. It was in Europe. It was, it was almost like a Polizieski, because... Yeah, it was, it was that's what I liked wrong. about it. And after one year, this guy does one movie of Superfly. It's such a tremendous freaking explosion of popularity. They let him direct the sequel. Yeah, so bizarre. Yeah, you know, and uh, <laughs> I'm not getting into it against Ronald O'Neill, but I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> interesting. Interesting. They, they cast that William Berger, Jacques Cernas. So this is really a bunch of characters in this one. And Osibasa, who did Shaft in Africa score, also showed up for Superfly TNT. They were from Ghana. Yeah. They're very percussive band. I actually had the soundtrack back in the day. Don't ask me really? to it now. Yeah. 
I was going to say, I want to hear that one. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear it too. It was a long time ago, my friend. Um, Osi Basa, uh, very percussive. Uh, not like, um, not like what's been very popular. A lot of well, Fela, uh, but stuff. you're probably thinking of uh, who were those guys? Uh, back in the '90s, they were a big deal. The like you think the African tribal, whatever the hell. Uh, no, no, no. They were trying, but they also had the drumming. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, not them. I was, you know, Tinnerwaren, Tinnerwaren. They're from the Middle East or something. Uh, they're very popular about the last five, six years. And OCBC was like popular for like three, four years. This, it's just like they're really not African, but they're from Ghana, and they're just very, very percussive, very tribal. Also, some guitar stuff going on in there, a little like funk. Right. But uh, I I had these soundtracks. I don't know what happened. But anyway, so you like Superfly TNT more than I did. I like Superfly more than you did. And so therefore, we're done. <laughs> therefore, we're done. I was like, you know, no point in going on forever. I just want to make sure we hit some uh, key points, key actors, and yeah, uh, some favorites. So we did. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we go on forever. Sure Blaxploitation we... is a huge genre. It's just yeah, these yeah. were some of the key ones, I think. And in some cases, some of the ones that were obscure, but ones that I like. Like I, you know, I mentioned these cheap urban ones. They're like clearly directed by some guy that's just, you know, whatever. Some guy that's got no money and he gets got a couple hundred bucks and a couple friends and makes a movie. That's really cool to me. But you know, it, uh, we definitely touched on all the major uh, points. I don't think we yeah, missed any. Yeah, I, I'm sorry if we didn't discuss like some people's personal favorites, like this Cornbread Earl V, Cooley High, Car Wash, yeah. Charlie One Eye, Western. You know, because it's all the eye of the beholder. It's just too big a genre. Exactly. But I think we did a good job tonight. You know, so yeah. we will be back next week with right. So next week uh, we'll be setting sails for sunny Italy. Uh, among the many subgenres of cult film the Italians co-opted and proceeded to perfect was one of the wildest, most consistently entertaining and grim of the bunch, the Polizio Teschi. Uh, marked by extreme violence, gorgeous women, corrupt politicians and police, and stylish and dangerous monsters with a code of ethics all their own, the Italian crime film surpassed its stateside UK and French forebears by amping up the action, the body count, the speed, and the explosiveness of it all. Packed to the gills with wild car chases, stunt-filled shootouts in crowded streets, and abandoned industrial complexes and backroom double dealings, there's quite literally nothing else like them in cinema. With directors uh, Lindsay, Damiani, DeLeo, Massey, Castellari, Salima, uh, and stars specializing in and rising to fame, mainly based on their efforts herein, like Maurizio Merli, Thomas Millian, uh, Gian Maria Volante, Luca Renda, Fabio Testi, and others establishing deep roots in the genre, like Martin Balsam, Adolfo Celli, John Saxon, Tully Savalas, Henry Silva. The Italian Chronicle has finally achieved reappraisal late in the DVD era, with many of its key efforts only making their way to domestic shores now. Uh, join us if we try to cozy up to the right people and pay proper respect to the people who matter to get things done, if you know what I'm saying, Capiche? So next week we kiss the ring uh, with the Italian police Otechi and crime cinema. Uh, so, unless you got anything else to say, we'll go to the close. No, no. Adios. Thank you all for listening, and uh, we hope you tune in next week. Next week's going to be a killer show. Yeah. Violence, <laughs> guns, weapons, drugs, women. Be there. <laughs> There will be square. All right, so thank you for joining us. Uh, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on exploitation. Next week we talk, I ain't crime films. So that's it.
you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or don't make your decision on the here, drop us a line on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash scenes one or our website, scenes one dot wordpress.com. Yeah.